Welcome to episode 68 of Zapped to the Past. I am Adrian Mills and I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Raddings. If you haven't listened before, this is a podcast where we discuss games that were released for the Commodore 64. Last week, we looked at our first batch of games from issue 31 of Zap 64, which we are in no way affiliated with, and were invigorated by International Karate Plus. We meandered through the streets of Mean City, and we got all rowdy in Renegade. This week, we conclude our look at the games in November 1987, along with what was lighting up our TV and cinema screens that month. So Graham, tell us what we have going on in this episode. In this overdue garage clear-out with five large planks of unexplained timber, large moving boxes, inexplicably full of mouldy soft toys, refuse sacks full of fusty-smelling duvets, a 70s-style framed rucksack full of 90s mobile phone chargers, and a weird collection of old kettles of an episode. We flex our digits, grip our joysticks tight and deftly manoeuvre our balls as we zoom around the crazy challenging planes of Qdex, bounce annoyingly around some more platforms in a desperate quest for stability and spooky creatures in the not-so-enthralling Scary Monsters, and pocket a whopping 25 million galactic groats to take on, possibly, Liza Minnelli and her evil minions in the blast-everything-you-can blazer. We also stink palm cracks Bloodfinger, ew, as we sneak into his base on a rescue mission in the heavily kerned but fun Joe Blade. Go hunting for the planet Nono and get kicked in the Rubicons as we try and fail to navigate deep space with a cuboid map in Star Fox and return after a 103-year hiatus to the once again demon-strewn world of Bilorn looking to kick Akamantor's evil ass all over again in the excellent Druid 2 Enlightenment. If that cobweb-covered nightmare of old RF cables and scart leads hasn't left you wondering if you've entered a giant Spider Queen's AV centre in the late 90s, we set course for the distant future and engage in some 3D track cart racing and orb collecting in the technically adept tunnel vision. Explore the nuances, fortunes and boredom of 18th century Hong Kong trading companies in the 8-bit reimagining of James Clavell's novel Taipan. Sneak into the headquarters of the KGB trying to find secret plans and somebody called Felix the Cleaner Hoover in the shifty Special Agent before finally grabbing our best adventurer's attire and heading deep into the platform-laden maze and key-strewn world of Solomon's Key. An unusual crop of programmes here, some good, some not so good. My wrists are aching now from all that tight gripping, yanking and slapping of my joystick and from playing the games too. Hey! Super. Super, 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 super. Um, so for all those just in the ongoing, I've just told Graham off here, but for the ongoing saga, I now have both ears working. Um, it's been a, it's been good. Fully functional dis- ears. This is yeah, good. Right. This is very it's, good. It's a, so I'm, I'm getting Graham. Graham is coming in both my ears at the same time right now. So I that's have not come in your ears and I <laughs> resent the accusation. <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm getting the full flush of you in both of them. And it's nice. It's nice to hear sort of thing rather than that dull ache I was having for, uh, for the last couple of episodes. So I may, be, I, may, I may sound more perky, this one. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. We've got lots of games. We've got TV and video. We've got all this stuff going on. Um, we've done the cover, haven't we? We did that last week. We did. Um, we did that last week. That was that Hunter's Moon thing, and Hunter's Moon is not in this episode, and it annoyed me because stopped doing previews. So there we go. I'm going to put it here right now so it's right at the start. We can Then we don't have to mention it at the end. 
uh, we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon, don't we? We have a Patreon. And if you wish to sign up to that Patreon, um, you can do. There are two two tiers which help us out. There's one for just a mere pound, a single pound. Um, and as the pound is doing so badly all the way around the world, it's probably a lot less for you guys if you're coming from not in the UK. So, yes, there is a pound, and that, that helps us out. There's the higher tier, um, which, well, at the moment, I don't know, what, can you get like a thimble full of petrol um, for it? Um, Literally the, a thimble full. <laughs> yeah, would be the sort of a measure you could get from that. And if you choose to that, there's get access to our Discord. You get access to the episodes early. You get the full uh, bonus episodes that we have recorded so far. Um, you get access to our Discord. As I said, access to Discord, things like that, and everything, you know, all that cool stuff. So, you know, and it massively, massively helps out. And you get mentioned in the shout out every month as well. So it's all good if you wish to do that. That's that. That's out the way. I thought I'd just say it now. And then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. You got anything you want to say right now before we crack in? No. <laughs> That's a very definitive no. <laughs> I have nothing to say. Nothing to say to you. All right. Okay. Uh, let's get on this. Let's get into our first game then. And Graham, this one's over to you because I know you like this one. Well, you did like this one. I'm interested to see if you still like it. If you still have the nimble fingers that allow you to get through the quest for ultimate dexterity in Qdex. This is quite an interesting game. Um, the creator is, of course, this is a, a Thalamus game. So the creator is the Thalamus guy, um, Stavros. <laughs> the only guy working there making games. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty sure it is. Stavros Fasoulis. Of course, the title else? screen. No, no. <laughs> I, think they, I think they do eventually. Well, yeah, um, The Walker. title screen here is um, is Paul Doherty, Doc. And, of course, the musician here. Now, this is interesting. The musician here is Matt Gray. So it previously, it's been Rob Hubbard. Now it's Matt Gray. And uh, that brings with it its own um, interesting sort of uh, nuances. So what is this game all about? So according to the uh, instructions, the, the designated uh, blurb, only cool nerves, precision, sharp reflexes, and mastery of the joystick will see you through the mind-taxing array of planes. Time is against you, and so are the problems to solve. But then yours is the quest for ultimate dexterity. Yeah, exactly. So, hence the Qdex part. That's the quest for ultimate dexterity. That's how you shorten it, apparently. I wouldn't have shortened it that way, but that's how you shorten it. So, what does this really entail in the game? You've got to maneuver a metallic ball around 10 different game areas or planes, of course. They're the planes. And basically get to the goal. Each plane has a starting point and a goal. You've got to maneuver your ball from one point to the other. And once you've completed that plane, which sounds easy, but it's not, the aim of the game is then to complete all 10 of those planes within a given time limit. But you may play the planes in any order and at any time. Um, So you've got quite a lot of uh, control over how you engage in this game. And that's the plan. So there's no massive story. There's no crazy story arc. There's no craziness. The idea of this is to get through the ten planes in as fast time as in a fastest time as possible, and that will enable you to complete the game. So, what does traveling around as a metallic ball in those planes actually mean? Well, so plane one is the first one you start off with. That's the introductory level, and the idea of that is to try and roll over the sort of fit, the, the flashing sort of squares. Reveal the next hole to the next subplane, which is like the next bit of the level that you're on, and then obviously try and try and gain access to that. Each level is timed. So if you stray from certain paths, um, you'll get like an electrified sort of sound and visual, and that means that your time is reduced. So you've got to try and carefully navigate with jumps and with precision joystick control, that hence the dexterity part, to try and navigate your way through that. If you do that, 
and complete that level, which you probably will complete the first level because it's designed for you to be able to complete. The next level is like a more of a maze with some teleports and doors. You've got to get pick up keys and you've got to try and get through those and touch the kind of various different tiles to try and jump around and try and find your way from the start point to the exit. In that one, there are skull tiles, which are lethal to you as a, as a player. So you've got, to, you've got to avoid those. But if you can avoid those and jump over those and navigate around, you might get to the, the third plane, or you could choose the third plane. In the third plane, you've got teleports and electric tiles, which are all over the place. And it's a sub-maze of invisible walls. So each one of these levels actually ups the ante on how difficult it is to navigate and get through. Remember, you had a time limit for all of these. So plane four is a race down an obstacle course. Plane five, you've got to try and change the color of the text, uh, the textured tiles by rolling over them. Plane six, you've got to navigate some pipes. Plane seven, you've got to uh, try and pick up as much as you can in that time when you've got some kind of goals. Plane eight, um, you've got to sort of work your way to the center of a maze. You get the idea that this is basically is a maze and roll around and pick up things game. The interim time between these levels, by the way, when you finish a level, you get like a little, um, I want to say Simon. It's like a Simon style level. So you've got, yeah, it, it is, presents yeah. you yeah. with a, yeah, it presents you with like a series of instructions like up, down, right, right, left, right, up, down. And with, with a tonal sort of sound to that. So you've got to kind of just kind of do that in that sequence and you'll get the bonus points. If you complete the 10 planes, well, you clearly have ultimate dexterity and therefore you have completed the game. And that is essentially what you've got to do. There's no big story around it. You've just got to try and beat the 10 challenges and complete the 10 planes of each of difficulty. Um, and as they go forward, they get kind of, well, I want to say forward because you can choose which route you take, route, route, sorry, route you take, but they get more difficult with as they go higher up, I think. So when you get to sort of eight, nine, and 10, they're getting quite crazy difficult. And the timing of these things is really hard. So completing a plane um, will get you to that bonus plane. Completing a plane is a hard work when you're past one and two. The graphics here are actually very, very good. You have a really nice sort of metallic ball that you control. And there's a little bit of sort of bounder, rebounder logic, although it's a bit bigger in the terms of the way it kind of looks. So you're looking top down, generally speaking, and you can kind of jump up and your ball sort of goes up towards you and down. So you can jump over the various spaces and, and do all of that. So the graphics and the scrolling is really good. The music is really good here. Generally, the production of this thing is really clever. And the, all of the scrolling and the game design, all of those elements that you'd expect to work really well do work really well here. The main game window is played out on the left of the screen. So it's kind of a 50-50 split to the left of the screen where the game works out. The right-hand side of the screen is more of your sort of information, controls, well, information and score and things like that. The control is obviously joystick-based, hence the dexterity part, with the fire button being the jump on, the, on those levels where it's prudent to do so. And everything is actually works quite well, and works quite fast, and works quite nice. The production of this game, as is always the case with Thalamus games, and particularly with Stavros Fasoulis games, is it's all really good in terms of its design, its methodology, the way it's put together. There's no real bugs in this. It works really well. You're instantly into the action. But there are problems here. I mean, I mean, I like the way that you can attack this in different ways. I like the way that you can get to those different levels and try that. That's that's a good thing. But there's a lot more memory required than joystick dexterity, if you ask me. This, for me, is more of a test of the ultimate dexterity of your memory. And because as you play these levels, you'll realize that in certain levels, when you go from the teleport to the teleport to the teleport to the teleport, you need to remember where those things go. Because the first level is kind of reliant on just teaching you the basics. After that, levels up the ante of difficulty in an extreme way. So you've got to remember not just the terms of where you can jump and where you can't. Bear in mind you're against the clock and things take your time away as well. 
So there's a lot of difficulty here. There's a lot more memory than, than dexterity, as I said, required. It's a playable game. There's nice things to do. It looks the part. But in all fairness and in all honesty, it's too damn unforgiving, this game. It really is. And I think, well, if you're making a game about this kind of thing, it just lacks enough of those things that give the player any kind of chance. You know, you're against the clock, you're against your own dexterity. You don't know what these mazes are going to look like when you start them. So, and especially, I mean, you, so part of the remit of this game is you attack invisible mazes. You have no clue what these mazes look like. <laughs> so of course you're not going to be very good at those levels. And and there is no giveaway. There's no, this is what the maze looks like. You've just got to kind of hover around and float about until maybe you go through a, a, a doorway or something like that. So that logic is quite unforgiving. That logic is difficult for this game. It lacks enough of the real player affordance across the whole game to really give you a chance. So the idea of this Qdex is really good. And it, and part of that is in those early levels when you press the fight when you press the fire button, you jump. You gotta jump with a bit of precision so you can navigate some of the spaces in the game. Later later on, when you're uh, sucked into some of these sort of tubes, I think is the best description of them, and you you kind of sucked around into these tubes and you fling out where you want all these teleporters everywhere. You're in less control of it, of the experience. So it's it's about memorizing where you entered that particular tube or or transporter and where it comes out. And I think because there's a lot of reliance on that, because there's not a great deal of dexterity around the gameplay. So you're controlling a ball in this environment and you're going to encounter a few different things. I think maybe, maybe, I mean, I found it quite difficult on a replay. I found it, I actually really enjoyed it back in the day. Got quite into this. I even completed it in the end, um, which has got a really interesting um, happy, happy Halloween uh, sort of ending for this without putting too many spoilers out there. But for me, I found on a replay for this, this is too hard. I'm playing as a 48-year-old as well. <laughs> um, and I like the idea of the presentation of Qdex. It's always been a good game to look at and, and it sounds good. Graphics are good. The pace is good, the technique and all the all of that stuff. And we've said this about so many games, but it's just too damn difficult to finish those late levels. And I just don't think you've got enough time as a sort of relatively novice player into this. The, the arc from novice to expert is too hard. And I, don't, I just don't think you're going to get past maybe level three before. And you're going to get to level three a lot and over and over again before you think, I'm just tired of trying to go for this quest for the ultimate dexterity. <laughs> I'll go for a relatively good dexterity with some of these other games and i'll leave this one behind but what about you yeah it's too hard for me <laughs> i just found it very frustrating from the outset i always did i always did this game and i still do it's so infuriating so annoying and so bloody hard that um like in most of the levels i just bounce right off this like you like yourself i can 100 percent appreciate the technical aspects of this game the presentation is top notch it's got a great loading screen and, and i really like the loading screen music really good piece of music the loading screen music in game it's all really smooth works exactly as it should do um although i would have liked to be able to navigate the level select with the joystick rather than having to press one to ten one to zero just a little bit but i would have liked to do that it's got a great title screen great music again in the game and the demo mode to show the levels is, is also a nice touch it's all very super slick and it's very shiny and i like the fact you can hit the fire button quickly to get into the game fast in game it's got great visuals from level to level, they're, very, they're quite similar, but they're very nicely drawn. There's a, there's a nice set of shading and nice use of colour. Um, and the scrolling is, you know, the action is very smooth and it's very refined. The high score music is also good. 
Um, and and I imagine that this, you know, this works exactly as Mr. Vasoulos wanted it to. It's, it's bloody hard. I bet that's why exactly what he planned. Despite all that, though, despite everything that's really great, I know that this game just is not for me. I couldn't do it back then. And 35 years down the line, I certainly do not have the ultimate dexterity to pass all 10 levels in one go. I can barely get past two or three. It's simply too much for me. Um, and so despite all its technical finery, Qdex was never a game, and it still isn't a game that gels with me. This is one of those games that I wish... And, and like you said, player affordance, I, w- I wish it had varying difficulties. So it offered you the option of, you know, number of lives, longer time spans, that kind of thing. Anything to allow you to get into it. I mean, you can put the ultimate mode in, so you could have the ultimate Qdex, which is where you have to do it all in one life. But but give the people, you know, give you give these people a chance to sort of say, right, you're going to learn this. You've got three lives and off you go. Uh, or we're going to put the timer up or there's not going to be a timer or, or whatever. It's just some way to allow me to sort of try and figure these things out without just dying quickly and feeling very frustrated every time I try one. You know, give me lower attainable wins. And I guess I know that it's just doing a level and working that through and you just keep hammering it. And that's what it is. It's like what you said. You just keep hammering yourself at a level until you've memorized it. And then it's not about dexterity so much, just exactly like you said. It's about memory. So it's just remembering where you went, where to turn, where to go, what teleport to use. And that's like, well, I'm not sure this is dexterity anymore. This is just memory testing. So I don't know. I always found this game punishingly frustrating and it's not changed. I completely get why it got a sizzler. It got ninety two percent. I totally agree with its rating. I get it. Yes, I'm no. I, I'm not going to argue against it. But I also know for sure this is never a game that's going to do it for me. I always felt like it was punishing for punishing's sake, and it just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, you know, I'm sure this this game will certainly be up some people's alley for sure. They'll love it. They'll be all over this. But it just was never ever was up mine. And that sounds wrong, but it's just not something I ever got on with. I found it annoying and frustrating and i wanted to like it but oh my god just give me like you said an easier in (sighs) i feel like i've got weight off my chest (laughs) well you'll get tired of doing the same two levels because you'll always do level one and two and after that it's just yeah they're just they're just ridiculous and the one with the invisible walls really made me laugh i'm like really i forgot about that one it took me as well it took me far longer than i'd like to admit to realize that that very first level you have to jump from square to square I was just pushing up for ages. And what's going on? Why why am I not? Mm. The very, very first thing, there's only five squares you have to jump. And if you, you land, you're landing correctly or roll into the next one on the bounce, you go, it sends you back to the beginning. Oh, yeah. You've got to figure out immediately the jump. But I was like, hey, well, I must be doing something different. But yeah. And then it's just, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, it's a game. To, it's a quest for ultimate dexterity. I get what he's going for. But. You could have you could have built, like you said, a difficulty arc into it, a way in, you know, allow people to get used to it and build up Absolutely. to the quest for ultimate dexterity. Let me let me do it with three lives, five lives, longer time spans. Just and then you could go, right, and get through it. Now I'm gonna properly test myself on yeah, this level. Lots of amazing graphics in that game. But Yeah, that's what I mean. Everything around it. It's like what, kind of what we said about um, uh, what we said about Morpheus last week. Well, every Thalamus game. That's true so far, yes. <laughs> Yeah, the three, the, the triple bill of Sanction, Delta, and Qdex. They all look great, but yeah, but they don't yeah. play that great. They don't. There's problems with the gameplay. There is. Shame. But yeah, but you did complete it back then, though, didn't you? I remember you telling me. I did. You were very did, proud yeah. that night I came round and you told yeah, me you completed yeah. it. I did, yeah, yeah. That was a real achievement and you can see why. I can bloody well. I, at the time, I was like, wow, that's impressive. Um, but I was like, I'm not going to do that. No, yes. not ever. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> no, it's not for me. So, no, I failed the quest for ultimate dexterity, I'm afraid. But I'm not surprised. I'm 50. <laughs> I don't have the reactions. My 15-year-old self Same. can do it. 
alone 50. Anyway, there we go. That's QDEX. That's our first one. Let's move on to our next one. And Graham, ooh, it's time for some scary monsters. And that applies in many ways, this game. It's another month. It's another Odin graphics game on Firebird. Yay. Why, why would there not be? Um, I'm not even sure we've mentioned the telecom deal. Do we ever mention the telecom deal that Odin struck with? No, but uh, I think you should right now. Yeah, uh, I'm going to mention it. So they made a, a six-figure deal, Odin, with British Telecom, who owned Firebird, to make uh, 10 games in 12 months um, to be released. Um, and if they were ports, that only counted as half a game. So this starts to explain these Odin games we're seeing on Firebird that are clearly not quite finished because this one, Scary Monsters, I'm pretty sure it's one of those games. It wouldn't surprise me. This is uh, Mark Dawson, uh, who's since changed his name to Mark Wilding, actually. Um, and there's an interview with Mark uh, Wilding on uh, on c64.com, and he just states that uh, this game was never finished. Um, he was given three months to make it, but after two months, he was told it was shipping. That was that. So the outside part of the game, which I'll get to, doesn't work as it should. So it starts to explain a lot of the a lot of the problems we've seen in these Odin games of like, like we saw with on the tiles and things like that, and the bloody owls and things. You know, it's just a result of trying to get so many games out. I don't know who knows. But if you pay, you know, if you've been paid six figure a six figure sum, well, there you go. Anyway, Scary Monsters. It's got code, as I said, by Mark Dawson, but he has since changed his name. I've noted to Mark Wilding. It's got graphics by Andy Rickson and music by Keith Tinman. Uh, and between these three, they've worked on numerous Odin games in Robin of the Wood. They've had Andy Robin of the Wood, Heartland, Ark of Yesod, Hyperball, and so on. So they're Odin graphics stalwarts. These three. So in Scary Monsters, you play all American football hero Harry Johns. Harry Johns who with his girlfriend Connie, a Connie Chun Christmas, have fallen prey to the psychotic surgeon Dr. Graves and have become trapped on his island, where the doctor has been busy busy conjuring up all manner of scary monsters, such as werewolves, witches, vampires, Frankensteins, mummies, and hunchbacks. Frankensteins? So it's, like it's like it's more than one? Well, well, what you well monster? If I just said monsters, um, then but they look like Frankenstein's monster, I suppose. So Frankenstein's fair monsters. Enough, fair enough. So. No, no, Although it would enough. be better if he was just conjuring up loads of doctors. <laughs> Doctor Frankenstein one, Doctor Frankenstein two. She's <laughs> got loads of. It's alive! Shut up! Loads of you saying it. So the game itself is split into two parts. So there's this aforementioned outside part, which sees you wandering the island, and this is how the game starts, until you find a building. And then once you find a building, go inside it, there's a scrolling 2D platform section inside. So inside the building, inside each building, uh, there is one of the six scary monsters, as mentioned. Werewolf, a witch, a vampire, a Frankenstein's monster, a mummy, or a hunchback. Um, And they will be situated there, and they need to be destroyed. And you have to destroy all six to escape the island but you won't and nor will you actually want to the outside part of the game is is top down view of the island and you control a little stick figure really little stick figure wandering about and i I presume that's harry um so you're wandering about the world uh so and the issues here start fairly early on because the collision detection is very frustrating and harry gets stuck on the world outline quite frequently making it really frustrating to navigate the small gaps that you can fit through really annoying and the screen jerks about and it's like oh he should be able to fit through there but he can't it's clearly this clap as noted was wasn't finished because it's just not if you do manage to fit through you can fit through these gaps jerkily fitting through these gaps you'll find a building doesn't get much better once you reach a building and head inside so these buildings are just like buildings on the map and you just walk up to them and then you, you'll it switches to an inside for inside view so you've got this 2d platform so side on 2d 
think uh, well think on the tiles think mario think think that you know 2d sex 2d platformer so when you first enter it, the building is deserted but as soon as you walk to the right because you're at the left and the, the it scrolls both ways so you can walk backwards and forwards there's a, just an endless supply of ghosts ghouls witches draculas and so on and they just come marching on relentlessly at all levels um and they're just relentless they're just constant you can shoot them with something now it says it's an energy bolt but i'm i'm not sure where that comes from why is where's he firing energy from i, mean, I just don't want to know but the energy bolt has limited uses but i couldn't see anything on screen that was telling me how it was running out so i don't know maybe i couldn't see something in the ui but i looked and i looked and i couldn't see anything and suddenly i just couldn't shoot now you can also do a peekaboo move which is like a smart way see but it, but the animation on this is really weird it sees harry grow massive hands as he goes like peekaboo towards the screen um <laughs> and it's really weird and this essentially this will destroy all enemies on screen so it's it's a smart bomb you know in all intents and purposes but it's just weird and I get it, you know, peekaboo, I see you, kills all the monsters. It's just, just weird. These are real monsters. They don't get killed by make-believe stuff you do to a baby. No. Just, no. I get the, I understand it, but it just doesn't work. So in each of the buildings as well, there's a weapon that you've got to find that can destroy one of the scary monsters. Um, and you must use this on the beast at the end of the level. The problem is, is that the weapon is not usually, well, it's not in the building with the applicable monster to kill. So you've got to trek from building to building to use them. Uh, but like I said, you, you're not going to want to do that anyway. It doesn't matter. There's many issues with the interior scenes. We've said about the exterior ones, but there's loads with the interior scenes as well. There's too many enemies to deal with. That's the first thing. It's just a constant nightmare of, of, of just enemies, and it's just annoying. And then we get to the way you jump. So you can't jump directly upwards. You can only do a mighty forward bound. We've got another mighty bound here. That's stupid. Another mighty bound. Another mighty bound. They loved the mighty bounds in 1987, didn't they? There's just loads of them. Didn't they um, just? And it makes navigating the platforms really tedious because you just want to jump up them because they're, they're stacked. They're like steps and stuff like that and platforms and ledges and things like that. So it's just really annoying and really tricky to navigate them because you're constantly jumping at a big, big old forward or, you know, backward an angle. And so if there's a ledge above you, you can't get onto it because you can't just jump up. I don't know what they were thinking. So more than likely, you just overshoot and you fall off down to the floor. And more that often than not, you'll hit an enemy. And should you hit an enemy, uh, then it will bounce you uncontrollably around the screen. You'll do a massive just flew like, halfway across the screen. Um, no. going upwards, which you don't. Um, and what that usually does, because the screen is so full of other enemies, it usually just bounces you into another one, which then you bounce off that. And you'll hit another one. And then you hit another one. And then your life's gone. You're dead. And that's one of your three lives lost. That's it. Bah. And you know this will happen time and time again. I never found any of the weapons. I got to the end of some of the levels just by running to the right at the bottom. And But I, you know there was a monster, but I had no idea what to do because I'd not found any of the weapons. So it's just bad. This is a really deeply frustrating game. And it's really, it's you know, let, never mind the outside bit. It's clear that none of this was finished and it was rushed out. Given the time, you know, this the, the, the visuals are all right. The visuals are decent enough in that Odin chunky odin manner that we're kind of used to at the moment but you know the, the jumping and the navigation and the bouncing around the levels and navigating the outer world are all unfinished and this was eight quid not this isn't a budget title this was eight pound this is a proper slap in the face this is putting out rubbish putting out unfinished crap nowadays we're kind of used to that with games coming out that are unfinished but we get you know inundated with patches and day one patches and day updates and all this kind of stuff you can't do that back then game is released it's on the tape that's it you're stuck with what's there 
and it's unfinished and it shouldn't have been released, but they're in this process where they're in this deal and, you know, this is what we get. In fact, that you know, that price is the only thing that's scary about this game is what I found. This was awful. I really didn't like this. It's just, just, just not finished. And it's clearly not finished, which, yeah, rubbish. I've got 46% somehow. I'm pretty, you know, they thought it was, you know, it was just badly programmed, but it's just broken and not unfinished. What about you? Did you enjoy... I'm guessing you didn't. I'm guessing you didn't, um, you know, enjoy getting scared by the scary monsters. No. There's nice graphics though, wasn't it? The graphics are yeah, good. Yeah, the graphics are good, yes. They're nice. Yeah, they look nice. It's just it was a shame that it was a kind of a platform game, run and gun, run and gun kind of rubbish. I like what they tried to do. It nearly works, kind of. The controls are okay, but the jump was stupid. <laughs> it's like a heroic bound. It's one of our mighty bounds that we like or we don't like. It's just stupid. The bouncing off the enemies part is the most frustrating and stupid thing of all. It's just crazy. I ended up doing that a lot more than trying to navigate the game. So boing, 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 boing. It's just annoying. And that's a shame, really, because the backgrounds and the sprites are quite well realized here and there. But mm-hmm. underneath all the annoyances and a decent explore, find the weapon and kill the monsters idea, what you've got is something that is basically a pretty dull game and even if it was exciting controlling it and bouncing off things that isn't exciting is it it's it's not nice that i spent more time doing that (laughs) yeah exactly there might be six scary monsters and i might have to find the various things to kill them and that's all good now the notion of that idea sorry is good the realization of that idea not so good and that's a shame i think they had something i think they had a nice idea about a thing but Mm. if you can't play the idea you can't play the game so goodbye adios farewell Get lost. No. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye, no, multiple Dr. Frankensteins. Yeah, and 46% from Zap, but uh, this isn't full price, full, full price, but eight quid, 46%. It's, it's, it, it would be an unhealthy punt if you read that review and thought, I've, got, I've just got my birthday money and I've got eight pounds. Do I buy <laughs> scary monsters? Don't. I would say don't. Don't do it. Um, this is a proper, it won't load. It won't load. Oh, Back my God. Yeah, this is. This. It just kept saying ready, run, ready. I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Just yeah don't goodbye. Know. Goodbye, Is that farewell, a so in long, your scary monsters. No. That's all. <laughs> no, no. There we go. Yeah. I don't scary carry monsters. magnets. <laughs> I carry two, but they, they will never they will ever meet. Uh, there we go. That's scary monsters. That's out of the way. Let's move along. And Graham, get your best jacket out, your best blazer, and tell us what you think about <laughs> blazer. Blazer. And this is coded by Mark Greenshields. I'm sensing a stamp relation. So Mark Greenshields stamp. I don't know. Greenshields stamps were a thing when I was little, but there you go. (laughs) Graphics are are by Stephen Rob. Yeah, they were. Uh, Graphics were by Stephen Robertson. That's S, sir. Is that sir? S-I-R, sir. I don't know if that's his acronym or. Title screens also by the same chap. Musician here is David Whittaker. Whittaker, Whittaker, Whittaker. Whittaker. And this is, of course, published by Nexus. So it's bound to be in a crazy shaped box. And it's probably shaped like a hen or something or a, or a <laughs> pigeon. A I don't bread. know. A loaf of bread. This is basically, it's almost Hades Nebula version 2, isn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah. But there are some interesting things. So the story, the story, Adrian, the story, <laughs> the warring factions. There are two warring factions, the Mazelli, <laughs> and I f- probably will for the rest of this call them the Manellis because I can't help it, but there we are. And the Sahabians, or the Sahabians, I don't know how you pronounce that, the Sahabian. Anyway, 
They're at stalemate. To end this once and for all, the Mazellis have invented a superpower mega warship called the Blazer, or Blazer, hence the title. If this thing ever gets fully switched on, bad things are going to happen. So the Sahabans can't let that become a reality. Who would? You can't, can you? You can't. Somebody says that's going to happen. As a good, honoured Sahabian... To happen. You can't just, you know, stand by and let these these, these Manellis get away with what they want, the Mazellis, anyway. So, they intend on sending a secret mission to Planet Explosives. In actuality, according to the blurb, they do intend on sending a secret mission to Planet Explosives and destroy the imminent danger. Do they intend to do that, Adrian? Is that the plan? No. Just send it, send... No, it's not. No, they're going to steal. Steal the blazer. <laughs> the stupidest plan known to man. So they're going to go in there Firefox style and steal this... Space. It's not going to happen because Fire it's not going to happen, is oh, it? I have to think in Mazzelli. <laughs> think in Manelli. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. All the single So the idea is that so there's, there's two ideas that are con- sort of fighting for each other. On the one hand, there is this idea that they're going to steal this Blazer spaceship. On the other hand, you've got to destroy it. So basically, they send you to destroy it. And to just guide you on this mission, so to sort of tempt you into the idea of this deadly mission where you've got to sort of go in there, plant explosives and destroy this crazy spaceship, they are going to give you 25 million galactic groats. 25 million galactic groats, agent. If that doesn't tempt you to want to enter into a deathly, no-hope mission on a quest for ultimate death, that you're going to leave 25 million galactic groats to your family well, as you die because you're not going to steal this craft, never mind the stealing mission. You've just got to blow things up. Is 25 million galactic groats a good offer? I don't know. <laughs> Let's just look at the intergalactic exchange for a moment. Yeah, and what's it worth? What will it get you in today's market? Well, 25 million groats have a value of eight Altarian dollars. <laughs> um, that, and that's, that good equivalent, that's the equivalent to 10... Flanian pobble beads. Oh no! Now, as we all know, the uh, Flanian pobble beads are the equivalent of eight or four thick four ningers. Eight ningers is equivalent to a single gigantic pew. And um, if you have uh, the gigantic pew, they are a galactic currency. But uh, the trouble is, with eight ningers to one pew, the triangular rubber coin of the ningi, which is six thousand eight hundred <laughs> miles across, no one's ever owned. It doesn't matter. What matters is you're never going to win enough of this. It doesn't matter. It's stupid. It's bullshit. It's stupid. It doesn't matter. It's bullshit. None of the story of this game makes sense because on the one hand, you're meant to be like going in there and stealing the ship. On the other hand, you're going to blow stuff up. The mission then is to fly top-down, scrolling, shoot-em-up style, blasting all the waves of Mazelli fighters, Manelli fighters, and dodging their bullets. You can upgrade your ship by docking with some of the enemy vessels and thereby inheriting some of the extra blastic ability. Very nice. All the while, you'll be flying over the craft, blowing things up. So you've got a basic fly of it. It's basically Warhawk and all those kind of games. It's that kind of genus. It's Light Force. Um, yeah. And Light Force. In short, shoot everything. I'm not sure where the stealing parts of the ship comes from, that bit, but you can fly into things and inherit their weaponry. The graphics here and the presentation actually are very good. There are great sounds, the great sprites, and the look, albeit that it looks like a lot like Hades Nebula, that's a big plus because here it kind of works. This is a competent and well-realized um, shoot-em-up. It's fast, it's responsive, and obviously stupidly hard. And there's much to like. I think the frustrating part in here comes from the enemy waves and the patterns, which get samey and 
the overall demeanor of the game is rel- is a bit of a relentless grind. The patterns of the enemies are the patterns of the enemies, and the, the, they kind of repeat over and over again. So the more you play this, you're going to be like, right, okay, it's the it's the ones that come from the left, do the spinny, 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 and then they're going like, to dive around. And then I'm going to get one from the left, which does the spinny, 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 dives around. Then we're going to get the uh, the, the eight from the left and the eight from the right, do the old, the old switcheroo. The patterns do repeat. And I think if you've got good memory, you're going to learn those patterns, and that's probably the best way to complete this. However, it's fast. It's quite responsive. It is stupidly hard, but there's quite a lot to like with this. I think the frustrating part comes from the enemy waves and the patterns, which get samey, but the overall demeanor of the game is it, it is relentless, and it's a grind. But it's the kind of shooter that sort of promotes that. This has the logic and the angular sort of dexterity, I think, of a proto-bullet hell game. It's very early on in those days for those, but it does kind of have that. And you are scrolling upwards on a kind of endlessly scrolling thing with just stuff to shoot at. And yes, you can shoot the uh, parts of a blazer or you can shoot the enemies that are flying towards you and you have to avoid the bullets. But this has that kind of feel of an early proto-bullet hell game in that you will die a lot (laughs) repeatedly in this. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And death will come to you repeatedly in this. But you do kind of pick up immediately where you left off. And there's yeah, little bits that are quite thing, yeah. nice. It's quite nice in that way. This is kind of a the kind of shooter that is in the arcade and kind of comes from the arcade heritage without the price tag. And I think there's a lot to like. I think the graphics are really good. Um, and if you like this kind of proto-bullet hell game, I think you're going to enjoy it. It is top price, though, at 10 quid. I think Zap were a bit harsh um, with the reviewer. They gave it a 63%. I think this deserves a bit more than that. The graphics are good. The sound is good. The playability is hard but it is pu- and punishing. But if you persevere and you remember the patterns and you start to... If you, if you approach this in the sense that it's a bullet hell game and the bullet hell games all have a required pattern of behavior and a pattern of logic about them, if you approach it like that... I think you can get more out of it. They just didn't know how to how to approach it back then. So I think this has got some merit. I enjoyed my time with Blazer, and I think it was graphically impressive, albeit that it was crazy hard. What about you? I think you like this more than I do. This, yeah, Damazelli and Sabin races. Who writes this nonsense? This is another vehicle scrolling shmup, and as you said, it comes from Mr. Hades Nebula. Uh, it's just more of the same of that, I thought. I, I thought the main issue with this is you're too slow again. You are too slow to deal with the enemy threat. That's what I found. But that's not so bad because a lot of the time I found I could just, like the opening two two waves that come on, you just don't have to move. Just don't move. They'll miss you and the bullets will miss you. So you can just sit there. It's kind of a strange thing to do. The power-ups are interesting in that the way that they do, they change your ship completely. You know, you get one to single shot, you get that spinning like star one. There's a shielded ship and there's another one. I don't know. It's okay. There's lots of things to shoot, I suppose. The world scroll by, you shoot stuff, you try and avoid the aliens. But they move about, you know, some of them, they just move about 10 times faster than you. And considering you're, remember, do you remember, you're supposed to be in the, the war, the war altering mega ship that's supposed to be the best thing ever made and will, you know, dist- you know, turn the tables on anything and everything and, you know, we can't let them have that. Well, I expect it to be a bit faster and a bit nimbler than the things that are coming at me. That's what I would think anyway. So, you know, I also thought that yeah, the graphics are all right, but there's quite a bit of slowdown when there's a lot of the uh, sprites come on screen. Um, and I also found that the collision detection would go awry a bit and that's, that's always annoying when there's a lot going on screen. You know, one of the things we spoke about last 
week in Morpheus was Braybrook going on about his 32 sprite multiplex and how there's none of that nonsense. Well, here it's not quite as nifty. It's not quite as good. It, it works, I guess, but it it's, can get flickery and all over the place. The music, yeah, it's another Mr. Whitaker piece, isn't it? It's okay. I thought it was quite nice. The tuning game is better than the high score or anything, but yeah, it's, it's not too bad. And of all things, I did quite like the high score table entry system, but I, I don't know. Bullet hell? Yeah, maybe. Maybe okay if I squint. It's doing absolutely nothing for me though, and a ten quid, nah. I, you know, this, Warhawk's a fifth of this, fifth the price. Probably by now, Light Force is a budget price. There's just loads of other options if you want your shooting thing to to pay heed to this. I think. I think the better, cheaper versions of this that are doing it better. Um, you're just too slow. I need to be faster, and especially if you can't get a power up that makes you faster, then what the hell are you doing? I don't know. It's not. It wasn't for me. I can see you know, your bullet hell stuff. I kind of get it, but you're just too slow. You're too slow in this again. I should be faster, like I said. I am in the premier premium spaceship. Make <laughs> me faster. Okay. There we go. <laughs> it's called Blazer. I want to feel like I'm blazing. <laughs> yeah, you won't. No, I felt like I was smoldering a bit. Yeah, not going to happen. Anyway, there you go. That's Blazer. Let's move along. Let's move along. Uh, we've got a budget one coming up next. Two quid. This got 92% and a silver medal. Wow. Mm. This is... Joe Blade, Joe Blade, Cracks, Bloodfinger. That's what a name for a bad guy. That is an ace. It's a very name. good name. Cracks, Bloodfinger, and they, they really like it so much because it comes up a lot in game. Anyway, Cracks, Bloodfinger has captured six world leaders, and they're being held res- ransom for thirty billion dollars. There you go. That's a lot of money. Thirty billion dollars. Get your little finger at you, Doctor Evil style. Yeah, absolutely. That's five billion a leader. You know. Only one man can save the day, and that man is you, Joe Blade. Uh, so this is a budget flick screen shooter from Players, and it was programmed by Kevin Parker and Chris Johnson, with music by Gary Biasillo. Uh, Kevin Parker will go on to do Joe Blade 2, and Gary Biasillo will go on to do Target Renegade. There you go, music for that. Anyway, budget plot side, it is what it is. You control the eponymous hero as he attempts to infiltrate Cracks Bloodfinger's lair and rescue the world leaders. To compound all this, there are six explosive devices scattered throughout the the complex, which must be armed by solving a simple puzzle. It's not really so simple, though, as I failed it loads of times in this game over. Dead annoying. You have to put the letters A, B, C, D, and E in the right order. And that's I know that sounds easy, but you can swap them first and third, you know, whatever. The way you can swap them around is annoyingly tricky, and you've only got a really short period of time, and if you get to zero, it's like game over. And it's that point where you get to like five seconds left and you're nowhere near, and you're like, ah, it's game over. <laughs> annoying. And so if you do manage it, sometimes I did manage it, once the first of these bombs is armed, it clicks the timer into place, and you've only got 20 minutes to complete the game. So the main game is split into the view of the room that you're in at the top and the UI at the bottom. So where you have info on how many leaders you have rescued, how many keys you have, how many bombs you have solved, your score, and how long left before all the bombs go off. At the top, above the play area, there's your health. It's represented by a bar at the top of the screen. And there's a scrolling message constantly going across that gives you info on what you've picked up along with the mission status. As Joe Blade, you are armed with a machine gun that has limited ammo, although, like I found in Scary Monsters, there's no counter for the ammo. So running out is usually a bit of a surprise. Suddenly you just can't shoot. you got to walk from room to room, shoot the bad guys, rescue the world leaders, collect keys, eat food to top up your health, and generally make your way through the complex. There are also uniforms you can find, and when worn, these will disguise you against the enemies that patrol the rooms. There are many of these enemies that range from armed troops to underworld henchmen, and only your machine gun and training, this comes from the rules as well, in a Tibetan monastery can save you 
you from them? What training do you get in a Tibetan monastery these days? I want to know. Sounds good. I'm not sure. Elite training. Elite. Shooting them sees you sees them reduced to piles of bones um, until they miraculously come back from the dead when you leave and re-enter a room. There's usually one or two per room. The game is presented side-on, um, so you kind of seen it. So it's, it looks similar in style to Death Wish 3. So there's doors... Uh, and in the back wall, there's doors, cracked walls, and broken windows. And you can go through any of those. Um, they lead up into rooms upwards. So, this, you know, imagine this, you're looking at this. But what it doesn't do is it never twists and turns like Death Wish 3. So no. it's, not, it's not so bad. It's not so bad to navigate this. It's all right. And there's basically, if there's a door at the bottom of the screen, it's kind of like a bit of an extended ground section at the bottom. So you can that tells you that there's a door there. Um, and that means you can go downwards. Um, if there's also, if there's no wall at the left or right of the screen, you can go off to the left or right as well into the next flick screen one. But this does mean is you'll need a map. It's quite, it, even though it doesn't twist and turn, it's quite easy to get lost in the complex. So you're going to need to map this. And there are also some of the, lock, the locked doors as well. There are locked doors. Some of the doors are open, some of them are locked. Um, and they can be a bit of a pain as they need keys to open. But the keys are a one-time deal. So should you go up through a locked door and then wander about a bit, if you come back down through that door, and that door will then be locked again. And if you have no further keys, you're not going back through that door. Um, so make sure you know where you're going when you enter a locked door. Make sure you look everywhere before coming back that way, because if you don't have any keys, you ain't going back if you need to. And this is made trickier by the fact that all the items in the game, they are randomized at the start of each game. So the, the leaders are dotted about, the bombs are dotted about, the costumes, the food, the keys, they're all randomized. So they could be anywhere. Uh, it's quite likely to walk onto the second screen, find a you know find one of your world leaders, or you find a bomb, and it's good to, it can start or be, get going quite quickly or can take a little while to find find things. And whilst this adds to the variety, it means that you need to search everywhere, every game, because you've got no idea where anything is when you start, because it's like I said, it's randomised. The game is quite slow-paced. It's got quite a leisurely pace. Uh, and the damage done by the enemies, when they, they, only, they can only damage you when they touch you, and it's quite low. Um, and any food you find puts you right back to full health. So I found the game quite quite pleasant to play it didn't feel threatening it was like oh this is quite nice this joe blade yeah i could do this for quite a while so dying this is what i know dying so suddenly at the bomb code part is quite annoying because you're just meandering around doing your thing shooting stuff finding stuff getting on with things and then you're dead immediately it's like a quick it's like a bomb insta kill um i found that quite annoying it's at odds with the laid-back atmosphere of the whole thing the graphics are weird they're a bit washed out they use a lot of the pastel colors so there's lots of pale grays pale blue pale brown don't, there's not much definition to them, and the sort of the sprites are defined with a grey as well, rather than a black. So everything feels a little bit pastely and washed out. The backgrounds are generally okay. There's brickwork. If it's outside, there's some trees and what have you. There might be the odd prisoner peeking out from a cell. But they do the job. They're just complex. It's what it is. There's a bit of decent music at the end of the game and on the title screen, but none in but none in game. And the sound effects in the game are just a bit sparse. But on the whole, I thought this was a rather pleasant wanderathon. <laughs> it's, it's kind of strange this game i never heard of it never played it like i said it feels like a toned down and more pleasant death wish 3 and kind of what that game was aiming for without the horrible tone of bewildering map and there's also if you flip this on its head and look down on it there's a bit of into the eagle's nest about this as well the way that um just seen from the side rather than the top like in the way you have to go about rescuing people setting bombs you can't see your bullet and that sort of thing you're sort of entering a complex so there's kind of a, a weird sort of into the eagle's nest vibe but seen from the side of this as well and you know you, you can't fire when you run out of ammo that sort of thing for two quid i thought this was all right i'm not sure it's worth 92 percent though I don't know about that, but it's okay. It's all right. I quite enjoyed playing this. It's got a weird tone to it, a weird feel, um, and it's quite, you know, it's quite well programmed. I didn't couldn't find any bugs or anything. Just stuff 
you know, everything went. The, the animations are quite nice. Joe Joe Blade is not what I thought it looked like. He's a it looks a bit like um, a pastel version of what's his face from Predator. Je- Jesse is it Jesse? What's the one with the mi- big minigun? What's his name? Jesse Ventura. It's kind of a bit like him. He's got a mustache and everything. So I just shoot, associate nineties action men with him. They've got mustaches. It's one of the better players games we've seen. Oh, um, and like I said, you get those messages across the top and everything. And the name I did like the name of the game on the title screen i think it was in the border so you know it's quite a nice touch as well i think this was all right but you know for two quid i think you'd be quite happy if you got this but i don't know what did you think to joe blade i'm not sure i get the zap score if i was honest no no i don't 92 percent silver medal i don't get that it's okay i suppose it's a bit boring really if you ask me the game graphic style was okay it's blocky and there were quite fun sprites and okayish backgrounds maybe there's a weird ui for this it's like someone found the type kerning tool and went on a giddy rampage with it <laughs> there's lots of text with like gaps in between the letters lots to explore though and it's two quid isn't it and i guess if you like wandering around and doing gravity defying leaps which there are in this because you kind of float around a bit yeah you can jump over the people the men can't you? this might this might very well be your cup of tea it is a kind of side view of into the eagle's nest that, that's genuinely kind of what it is but and there is a decent game in there and it has a point and it has a direction and it has goals and it has a quest and in that essence for two pounds it's not so bad really is it the enemies are refreshing with every flick screen which is a bit of a pain so you go on one screen and leave that yes. screen go back yeah. the enemies come back that's kind of horrible logic but it's two quid so I don't get the 92%, I have to say. I don't think it's anywhere near that. But for £2, this isn't totally bad. The graphics are okay. The backgrounds are very repetitive and okay, but it's £2. And there's enough game and fun in here for £2 that it, it would pass an afternoon. I don't like generally like games where I'm wandering around a lot, just sort of going in and out of doors. It felt a lot like the kind of logic that we've seen in Death Wish 3. Like you said, it's, a, it's an Aldi Death Wish 3, really. But... <laughs> And without all the violence and the gore, you know, it's it's kind of simplified it a bit. But the trouble with that game is the same with the trouble with this game. There's no longevity to this. It's no, it's but for two pound you can get away with it. But there's no longevity to it. Um, you're just wandering around this maze, maybe trying to find the things that you maybe want and maybe doing. I don't know. Two pounds though. I don't get the silver <laughs> medal. I don't get the ninety two percent. But it's all right. No. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's a t- it's a two quid. Okay. Uh, yeah. I yeah. Get it. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. There we go. All right, let's move on. We've got one more left. And that one, we are back into space. 3D space. Is this a sequel? I don't know. Is it Star Fox? Not the uh, not to be confused with Star Fox by Nintendo. This is Star Fox, Graham. Tell us all about Star Fox. It's nothing to do with that. So just What's erase that? that out of your mind. The Star Fox from the Nintendo. It's nothing no, to I mean, do with it, that. No, I mean, is it Sky Fox? Is this a sequel to Sky uh, Fox? Yeah, I think it kind of is, maybe. Anyway, it's from the same company, isn't it? Ariola Soft. This conversion mm. is by Christoph Chilute Venibu. I think that's how you pronounce yeah. that. Tout screen, Rob Jackson, musician, Andrew Craigie. Craigie. Anyway, there are eight planets in the peaceful Hyturian system, Adrian, eight, protected by a cubic shield known as the Rubicon. People of this system have lived in calm, peaceful happiness. And that, Adrian, is nice. It's nice. However, not anymore. A ninth planet has appeared, the planet of No-No, Nunu, however you say that. I, I'd like to say No-No. No-No. Do you say Nunu or No-No? I don't know. I don't know. This has floated. How's it spelled? It's N-O-N-O. No, it's No-No. No-No, I guess. That's a No-No. This, the planet of No-No has floated somehow unnoticed into the Rubicon, carrying with it a dirty load of intergalactic knobheads. 
<laughs> so you are Hawkins. Hawkins. And also part-time galactic super pilot of the feared Star Fox space fighter. Good job you're a bit of both, isn't it? Yep. Remember, for this game, you get further with a kind word and a gun than you do with a kind word. Remember that logic? Because you're, you're going to need to remember that. So... Your mission, scoot around the Rubicon, shooting at various buddies while completing eight different stages on your quest to find the ninth planet of Nono and kick some Nono alien butt and other alien butt in the interim. Each stage requires a different goal and these are only revealed to you on each of the eight planets of the system, which you must find by scouring the Rubicon and using your super navigation map. Once you've found them, they will appear permanently in your map and you can autopilot to them and their orbiting motherships. As part of the task, you have to navigate a wormhole too. So it's not just as straightforward as finding stuff. You've got to navigate some stuff and do some stuff. You have. You've got to know your way around the universe a little bit. Okay. You do. All the while, enemy ships, storms, and other galactic issues will drain your shields for your spaceship, your, obviously your Star Fox. So you have periodically refuel at motherships which are docked around the planets which you have to find. Also, you can apply upgrades to your ship which will greatly help you. However, as you upgrade, so do your enemies and they will also develop defenses against your weapons so you've got to watch out. Each planet has eight weapon packs but only offers four at a time. These will always be the weakest four it has So, and they're also not in the right order so you've got to upgrade and update your ship in a certain way to make sure you have balanced the weaponry that you have acquired <laughs> to match the enemies that you might be facing. That bit is a little bit nondescript in terms of how you do it in the game. From the description of the instructions, it's all straightforward and easy. It's not so easy, actually. It's not. So to navigate your way around this world, you have what's called a hollow cube, which you get by pressing the H key. This mm -hmm. is essentially a 3D map which shows your position relative to the planets that you've found and the objects that you found and the enemies. So you actually get a cube, essentially, and you can rotate this cube around with the and zoom in and out with the ZX keys and the joystick so you can actually navigate your way around this sort of 3D map. Now, it won't help you because... <laughs> No, a map in 3D that is just dots in a 3D space is no. It's actually no better than a map in 2D, which would be much more akin to yeah. something that would actually help you get from A to B. You can access two different kinds of space log in this game as well with the keys one or two. One shows you the positions of the storms, the weapon packs, as well as some of the enemy information. Number two is the autopilot, which contains the log of the planets and their positions. If you select a planet and exit, you will automatically be facing in the direction of the planet. You get the idea that you've got to navigate yourself to these planets and these places. And that, in this game, is not as straightforward as it sounds. So you've got to do that. And if you select a planet and exit, you will be able to automatically face that direction. Then you can press T on the keyboard and turbo your way towards that, assuming there's nothing in your path. And you super flight your way to where these planets are. Around each planet, there is, thankfully, a mothership. And you can dock with that. And there, and in those, you can upgrade your weapons. You can trade. You can do all sorts of cool stuff. So there's some keyboard commands for this game. You can you control your spaceship and your view with the joystick. But you've also got H for Holocube, M for cheat, which is the stupidest cheat mode of all time, and which you can just press M and just cheat if you want to. So and we'll come back to that in a moment. And then you can do the general log, the planet log, the fuel call. And, and there's a few keyboard commands. So this isn't just a straightforward 3D fly and shoot. There's some stuff to this. And I think this is a better attempt at the kind of 3D space fighter game idea. And um, the graphics actually are quite nice. There's blocky filled in things that kind of fly in front of you at this game. <laughs> That's a good description of them. The, it's the best way you can describe them. But what they're not is crappy 3D vectors. What that they is are true. is clearly sprites. 
And that actually lends itself to this kind of gameplay. So it, it moves quite fast, and that's what kind of what you want. There's some nice ideas here. and The controls are quite good, and they're quite fun. The keyboard controls aren't obtrusive or difficult. You can just get about with them and do what you want to do. The main window view of your cockpit is good. There's enough detail in, in terms of maps and things to do. The 3D holographic map, when you press H, is quite nice. And often it's a combination of the cube map, which you can sort of look at and it's meant to help you. I don't think it does. But in combination of that and the turbo and maneuvering around, you can actually get around and sort of navigate your way around this 3D space and get yourself around the universe. The problem is you can deal with that a lot in this game. There's a lot of kind of empty space. I spent a lot of the time wandering around the universe of this space, just floating around, just waiting for things. And periodically I did get attacked by things. And I'm not sure how relevant they were to the things I'm trying to achieve. Um... I got attacked by some squiggly kind of squares, some floaty kind of cube things. I'm not sure what they were. Did they have a value? Did it matter? Are they helping me towards my mission? Well, for the first game, you just got to, for the first level, you just got to shoot as much as you can. And then you get to the second level and the third level. And each level is revealed to you as you, you go along. I think the problem here is that the, the design of the game in terms of its look and its feel and its action is very elite looking it's kind of that kind of elite but on steroids it's kind of fast it kind of works problem is the main game around that is not as compelling there is a trading kind of element to this there is a kind of floating around moving around planets but it's nothing like elite it doesn't have that kind of uh, dexterity that, that kind of depth so what this is is not as good as any of those things now don't get me wrong the 3d sort of space fighting part is really good it does kind of work but there's a bit of obtuse flying around the stars here with the goals that are vague. So you just look kind of floating around a lot. There's a cheat mode that you can just access by pressing the key M, which makes me think that maybe this game was designed to be too hard and that the designers of the game just thought, you know what, let's give these people a chance by just making the cheat mode just a letter on the keyboard. So you don't even have to try hard for that. Is it too hard from the start? Well, I started this game as a basic person and you have to think, shoot. you have to shoot in the first level, I think 40 plus enemies finding those enemies that's the difficult part and it wasn't <laughs> yeah. like they bombarded me all over the place <laughs> i was floating around the universe looking for stuff to do and that's the problem with this game generally is that the goals and the objectives are all obtuse there's a lot of control and around your experience there's a lot of nice little features in this game there's loads of little things to do but the mainstay of the mission, which is to find these various items and shoot things and shoot things out the sky and dock and do those things, they've made it too hard to do those things. And so because it's too hard and because even with an autopilot on this, activating the autopilot to guide you to a planet that you've already discovered is a nightmare. It's, so, it's just ridiculously difficult. And so because of that, because of the other issues and everything else, it's too hard, this game from the start. There's a lot to like with this game. And I think it's a better blend of the 3D fighting style in terms of its Sprites, but it's just too empty. This is a real example of space flight around an empty space. I imagine this is actually what real space flight and space fighting is like. Then <laughs> um, we're going to war with M31 Andromeda. How far away are they? 200 million light years. How long was it going to take us to be into, involved in a battle? 200 years plus. <laughs> all right, all right, well, we better settle in. That's two or three generations of people. No, I've already brought no, one no, book. No. I know, exactly. It's it's a very well-realized game, but there's not much more to it than the well-realized part. Sad. What about you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was, I was, yeah, is it Sky Fox in space? Yeah, probably. It's a, like you said, it's a relatively fast 3D space blaster that has you shooting various solid 3D things. I'm not sure what they were. There's, like you said, there's cubes, there's squares that move in and out of each other, there's round things that things that at times look slightly Star Wars inspired. I don't know, but then you you, you sometimes come across a. Did you ever? Did you come across the refueling 
ship. A bit of excitement. The refueling ship appears. You can head down wormholes to a planet to upgrade weapons, which is really weird and tricky. You have to sort of turn it around and then back into it. It's dead old. Uh, it's stripped down than some shooters have seen, and the use of solid graphics rather than vectors is good, but... As you have rightly pointed out, it does get rather dull rather fast. Being told on the first planet I had to shoot 60 enemies to progress just made me slump in my chair. As Not that I could find out or tell, and you, as you couldn't either. There's no quick way to find them. You just flew about until it said nope. a convoy was near and tried to line them up and kill some of them, then wait until another one turned up. After about 20 minutes of this, I'd killed about 10 ships, and I just decided I had better things to do with my life. Presentation is really strangely bare bones, but but it's, uh, it's nice that it all fits into one load. That's good. I just didn't really find that much to do in this. And aside from waiting for convoys to turn up, and when they do turn up without Chris Christopherson, I just get annoyed. The Holocube as well was of no use as you've rightly pointed out because it's really slow and I couldn't see anything on the actual UI to give me an idea of which direction I was actually heading in so I didn't actually know whether that was the case did you note anything on the UI that told you which angle you were actually facing no yeah so it's great having a, a dot in a, in a in a box but it's like and another dot which represents somewhere you need to go it's like well am i facing the right way and it's kind of like you have to sort of start moving and see where your three coordinates are changing and try and figure out from them and it's really tricky no there were if they're giving me some coordinates to go right you need to be at x this y that z this uh, okay right head that way but they didn't do any of that there is certainly some animations on the ui in fact when i pressed l which was supposed to line me up with nearby ships this this thing started flashing on the right i don't know if it did anything apart from make that start flashing and beeping and flashing and beeping if this had been a little faster in its delivery of stuff to do and like i said don't ask me to shoot 60 ships unless you're gonna throw loads of ships at me and make it fun and a dogfight and fast and go then you know it could have been okay but as it was i was just bored of it by the time i turned it off and i just had no real interest in heading back into space to try and find all nope. these ships just dull and you know as you've rightly said i yeah i imagine that's what space is like but you know it's supposed to be a space 3d shooter but and i quite like when you were actually shooting and the stuff's moving about i did actually quite like it but the, the gaps in between those bits were interminable and just uh, no it was a shame sped it up a bit had more stuff in it this would have been all right because technically it's quite sound but but no lack of content renders this inert and there we go. That's Star Fox. That's our last one. That's our last one for this section. So we've looked at five there. We're going to go away for a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll be getting into film and TV uh, for November 1987. So we've got some films to look at, TV to look at. So please do stick around and we'll be back in little more than three shakes of a squid's leg. <laughs> Massive Sunday roast dinners and Yorkshire puddings to our wonderful show sponsor, DavidHernWriter.com, where you will find a whole load of brilliant audiobooks, bargain books, ebooks, and more. David's latest amazing book, Escape from the Commodore 64, is available right now. In fact, let's go and have a sneaky listen. It would be rude not to. There was a knock on the door. Sarah and Nell looked at each other. Nell motioned she should open the door, and Sarah kept what was now known as her gun hand over her holster. Going through the unlocking routine, then pulling open the door, Sarah was greeted by a young boy wearing breeches and a hat. I've got a secret I won't tell, the boy stated. Keep it that way, Nell snapped, kicking the door shut in his face. That wasn't very nice, Sarah managed, relaxing a little as Nell did the relocking of the door. Trust me, he's a dead end. Speaking of dead, on another visit here, the entire town was deserted. The last spectre of a sheriff had shot everyone, liked his peace and quiet apparently. 
Thankfully, he left town on the Eidolon, the only train around these parts. Now that is a spicy meatball. Escape from the Commodore 64 is available right now. Don't listen to me yakking. Head to davidhernwriter.com to find out more. And we are back. We are back. Uh, it's like we never left. And we're back with film and TV in November 1987. We didn't ever leave. We never left you. We never left your ears alone. We hope you never leave. <laughs> uh, well, maybe. Um, right, let's get into this. TV. What was going on in TV for November 1987? So on the 2nd of November, it was Channel 4's fifth anniversary, and they included a screening of Tony Harrison's controversial televisual poem, V, was it five? I presume it's V, which attracts complaints due to its frequent use of extreme language. Yes, it does have rude words in there. It does, but it's a poem and it's in the poem, so you can't bleep them out. It's just silly. Do you like this poem? You're more into poetry than I am, so I'll... Yes, yes, it's a good poem and it's a classic poem. I can't read anything out of it because I have to bleep it out. I quite like <laughs> it. What's interesting about the whole thing of this is the timing and the complaints because... This was the chief complaining time. Everyone complained about what we things that they're complaining about now. We don't have the complaints about now. No. So now this is pre Game of Thrones and other TV. So after Game <laughs> of Thrones has been on, when you look at if you think that Game of Thrones is a TV program on a mainstream, not just a mainstream top channel, but a massive production, you know, two million dollars an episode or whatever and it had very rude things in it generally very very rude then you look at what they're complaining about here the use of the f word or the c word or the p word and you think really how times have changed but this is a theme of this particular episode when it comes to film and tv unbelievable that is a great poem and all i've said is you know what there was such complaint about this and um, you put a few extensive notes in there about the fact that um people complained and there was uh, this is obscene there was it was mentioned in parliament mps got involved it's, this is terrible the independent newspaper published it in full going this is it's art what are you talking about controversy 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 mm. however nowadays you can just google it and find it with all of those words in. It doesn't matter, does it? Really, it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. We'll 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 po- we'll post we'll post a link in the show notes so you can go exactly. over it yourself. The, the regime um, of the BBC looking after the moral higher ground of people is gone. Yeah, and there is much better poetry out there that expresses that kind of thing. My favourite being "This Be the Verse" by Philip Larkin, which is one of my favourite poems, and I will put the link to that poem. I'm not going to read it out because we'll probably get blocked off um, if we read that <laughs> and the previous poem. V, we get blocked on Podbean or Pod on the podcast, <laughs> probably for for profanity. But you can go and read it for yourself and enjoy. So go and do that. I thought it's funny. There's a there's, there's a note on Wikipedia about how the MP Gerald Howard said that Harrison was probably just another bolshy poet wishing to impose his frustrations on the rest of us, and when told of this harrison retorted that howard was probably another idiot mp wishing to impose his intellectual limitations on the rest of us because yeah, we all know bolshy poets that have massive influence on the world <laughs> they, are, they run they run the they run the country those bolshy poets they're always changing stuff setting policy and what have you exactly bolshy exactly. bolshy a lot of them anyway despite continued protests from conservative facts to the press and Parliament. This, the broadcast went ahead, they showed it, and there were very few complaints from viewers. And since then, this poem has been selected for study in schools. <laughs> so, you know, of course it, it has. Yeah. It just... It's what it's just words, just language. Swear words are just words. I know they are. 
ridiculous. Just utterly ridiculous. Anyway, that was uh, that was interesting. Uh, I did like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was being flippant at the start there um, about the uh, Arthur Scargill quote, but hey ho. Fourth to the eighteenth of November, Damon and Debbie. It became the, becomes the first soap bubble, which was a miniseries which took two characters from Brookside into new locations and their own story. So this was Damon Grant, I think it was. I think it's uh, Brookside had already been quite controversial. Where I think his mum had been raped. I think at one point, and there's loads of different things. So essentially, the, the actor who played Damon wanted out of the show. Um, and he had already been used as well as a as a um, as a way to knock the government's uh, YTS scheme at the time because in the show he'd be he was working on a YTS which was a youth training scheme and when he's Crazy. coming to the end of that he says oh I'm looking forward to carrying on and getting a proper job here and they just turn around to him and go no we're just going to let you go and get more cheap labouring um, <laughs> so you know the, Brookside was. You know, it's a Liverpool, so it's a, it was very critical of the Conservative Parliament at the time. So Damon was the character, he, the, the actor Simon, oh, I can't remember his name, Simon something or other, he wanted out and he wanted to go out on a bit of a, a blaze of glory. So they did this thing and they, someone coined it a soap bubble, which I think is quite a good term. So it's like a, a side story happening away from the main story that will then get integrated back in. So Damon and Debbie with this, couple, this young couple, they go off and have an adventure and they're thinking and by the end of it, uh, it ends with uh, Damon getting stabbed by a, an unknown assailant and dying. And that's how it ended. <laughs> So uh, that soap bubble was popped and filled with blood. <laughs> Good old chirpy, chirpy, blood-filled bubble. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Absolutely, nice. yeah, horrible. And so, you know, it's typical, typical Brookside. But that was that. But it was a, it was a. You get lots of. I think there's been loads of those kind of things since those strange, you know, soap bubbles. I suppose you call them the ones. I know one that does it all the time. It's bloody Hollyoaks. They're always going off and doing stuff always. in that crazy stuff. But I imagine there's probably. I mean. The, Cory do it? Has Cory done it? Coronation Street done it? Has EastEnders probably at some point? Who knows? Anyway, that's where it all started. You have that to uh, you have that to thank. More going on in the soaps. Seventeenth of November and more controversy. The first episode of EastEnders to feature a gay kiss is aired on BBC One. The scenes see Colin Russell, played by Michael Cashman, kiss partner Barry Clark on the forehead. <laughs> And this episode attracted a record number of complaints from angry viewers. In addition, some sections of the British media react with fury, dubbing the show East Benders, which is just shockingly bad. Unbelievable. It's just just shocking. Questions are also asked in Parliament about whether it is appropriate to have gay men in a family show when AIDS is sweeping the country. Unbelievable. It's shocking. It's shocking. And we're we're not going back that far. We're not going back that far. It's amazing to me that something like this, which is now considered innocuous, would promote such outrage, such unfathomable argument. Um, And I think the papers around the time who dubbed this EastBenders, they forget themselves nowadays, don't they? Because they're seen as the bastion of the narrative. They portray themselves as this righteousness of this we are the common good we reflect the the mood but you know what there was a time and it wasn't that long it isn't that long ago when they did not do that when they were the scourge and the nightmares of things and this is an example where they prompted a headline around east benders come on come yes. on it's really bad. And all over it's a kiss terrible. on the forehead. It's just Exactly. It's that then and, and you can imagine at the time it was all where is it gonna lead? Where's it gonna go? You know, who cares? Yeah. But it was a it was a big deal for the people sat there watching the EastEnders and other shows for their you know, their standards of moral decency. Remember that the BBC has a remit 
for moral decency at its heart. So imagine, um, but it's terrible, terrible. And I, I still can't quite get over the language and the tenacity and the horror of the things that they put out at that time are about the fact that a guy kissed another guy on the forehead. Horrible, terrible, terrible. And it's, you know, I bet Mary Whitehouse was up in arms. Yeah. Um, well, she would have been if she could operate her arms, but her arms were broken and shattered from a weak, a weak elbow joint and a weak shoulder joint. Absolutely. She bought herself a Shackleton's high seat chair and it, it ejected her. It just rejected her and just flew flung her across the room really fast. But um, she just um, stood at the back of the room and shouted, Lazuli, like that. <laughs> and when she did that, absolutely. people took notice, then, things happened. Four other Mary Whitehouses, all the same, appeared behind her, and the second one ate a sausage. They all exactly. enjoyed it. And then the fourth <laughs> one just laid an egg, a really greasy <laughs> egg. And out of that egg fly a special moth. But there you go. That's just the way there it works. There you go. There you go. Yeah. All because a man kissed another man on the forehead. All because she loved milk tray. <laughs> that's just... <laughs> That's just trays of milk. She loves just trays of milk. She, loves, she, she does, yeah, yeah. There's no reason she for it. She just does. House. She, she can't have milk in bottle form. No, she goes and laps at them like a cat. Exactly. She can't have milk in bottle form or in a container. Nope. It has to be uh, laid out in uh, in that particular form. The milkman that's, that's hates delivering there. He hates it. Like, oh, he I've got to put the milk in this bloody tray. It's a Leave tray it on the milk. doorstep. Oh, my God. No. She'll I, know I've spilt some because she's been like a She's nearly dead. Surely this must end soon. <laughs> this, this tray madness, this milky tray madness. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. 22nd of November, there was the final edition of the 1987 run of Play Your Cards Right. The series disappeared from ITV after this date. No one knew where it went. It just disappeared. It didn't turn up again until March 1994. Well, it would do, because it through a time slip. Bruce Forsyth was a vampire and he can only <laughs> exist in a certain frame of, in a time on those shows. And if it exceeded those things, he needed to drink blood. And that's what <laughs> he happened. He needed seven years to rejuvenate. <laughs> exactly. It's like, uh, that. what's it called? Uh, Jeepers Creepers. Bruce <laughs> Forsyth formed a husk. Just <laughs> sort of, his wings enveloped him and he formed a husk. And then a few years later, he'd come out of that husk and hunt based on and smell hu- and taste. <laughs> Jeepers, play your cards right. <laughs> Where to get those? Where to get those peepers? All right, nice, to, <laughs> nice to see you. To see you, nice. You have got nice eyes. I'm having them. <laughs> I'm having them. Your tongue smells yeah. nice, and that's a weird thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> I know. I, I really don't like that when you say that to me when I come around your house. It's really unpleasant. Your tongue smells nice. Leave me be. You got a real pretty um, tongue. <laughs> I. To be fair. I I really like play your cards right. <laughs> it's one do. of my favorite game shows. I don't know why. It was just I always liked that on a Friday night. It was always a it good start to Friday you, that's night. Why. Yeah, I know it does. It's the is it higher than the seven? Higher than seven? Oh, it's an eight. Ooh. I was always I always used to get very excited at play your cards right. That was great. You get a couple of couples on and a bit of Brucey banter. Awesome stuff. Loved it. All right, dollies, do your dealing. <laughs> yeah, that too. Do 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 what I meant was uh, in more of a fun way, not in a dramatic drug-infused way. Okay, okay. That's why it got taken off the air for seven years. That's where we're going Bruce. now. Okay. There's the missing last episode where Bruce is stoned out of his gourd. Nice to see you, to see you. Hi. To see you. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, what we All got? Right, new Bruce? shows. That's <laughs> let's leave the high Bruce foresight in the past. Hi, uh, Bruce. Second, <laughs> second of new, second of no, November, new new. Second of no November uh, was the Gemini Factor new show. A twin brother and sister separated at birth, two halves forming the yin and yang, two telepathic minds, an ancient clock tower, a mystery to keep the mind alert. Six episodes of utter shite. <laughs> I don't remember this. Did you, have you ever watched it? Yes, it was crap. Who utter was rubbish. It? That doesn't matter who was in it. No one you know. <laughs> I really don't remember this at all. Red just nobody and just... Bobby who gives a shit. They were in it. <laughs> is it, um, what was it, ITV? Is it just, you know, crap, mid-80s sort of serious yes, sci-fi? it's crap. Exactly, it's crap. It's an attempt at kind of, Semi-series. It ran for six episodes and they cancelled it. That's all that you need to know. Yeah, fair enough. Probably. Well, as long as, you know, Matt told its story in all those six episodes. No, stop trying to give more credit to it. <laughs> it ended after six episodes for good reasons. Let's leave okay. it there. Move on. Walk away. Walk okay, away. Wh- <laughs> I just wanted the yin and yang. Walk away. <laughs> 4th of November, there was a perfect spy which was a BBC adaptation of John le Carre's novel, A Perfect Spy. And this series was nominated for five BAFTA awards in 1988 and was heralded as as being quite good. As good as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in fact. Maybe, as I like to think of it, though. Just (laughs) if you're going to say something is the, uh, the, what did they say? It was the, wasn't the winner, it was the runner-up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's just like saying it's the best loser. Oh, it's the taking power that counts, man. Whatever. Whatever. You made that program and it was boring and stupid. Yeah, so, true. I would good, have liked it. Goodbye. So. so long. Farewell. Avida Zen. Goodbye. Uh, 11th of November, Headliners, which ran for two years. It was a game show based on news headlines. Um, yeah, interesting. Have I got news for you and Mock the Week, <laughs> but a decade too early. Yeah, heavily influenced those things. And Derek Jameson was actually an ex Fleet Street new journalist. Yeah. Um, Gobby, was. Gobby sort of uh, person that he was but he, he suited that kind of tv show really well so it was uh, it was supposed to, to be according to what i read it was supposed to be hosted by eamon andrews but um he couldn't do it due to being dead yeah um, he, he died he so, died yeah. yeah so you know other he's contractually unavailable <laughs> <laughs> he was yeah <laughs> but uh so derek jameson ended up with it I, put, I posted a picture there of what it looked like yeah and, yeah uh, derek jameson was a cool guy he was very loud very loud he was really guy. yeah rah, 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 rah. Yeah, like, oh, all right, you, you bloody people, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I'm yeah. trying to gate my language because he swore a lot. So, But um, that was headlines. I'd never heard of it, but it clearly, it was, like I said, just a decade too early because I got news for you was what, mid-90s? Yeah, when that started, absolutely. Early it's all 90s. borrowed from that style, yeah. So Totally. Again. 16th of November, Simon and the Witch. No. I, I didn't know no. this at all. Um, yeah, well, I, I knew it's, of it. It's, it's, I, no, I've never heard of it. Suppose it's a, a long-running series of children's books. It is, or something. yeah, 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 both. And I, I know of Simon and the Witch, and I know that it was on, um, and they, they got quite a bit of production around it. And it, and from what I can gather, it was quite well received. But I never watched it. It wasn't my thing. Nineteen eighty-seven to nineteen eighty-eight, in terms of that kind of show, I think it was more for kids. Yeah, you know, Simon was doing funny stuff. The witch made him do, you know. Oh, he's floated in his own bedroom. Uh, oh, look, he's made a car disappear. Uh, no, not for me. No, 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 no. Not no. for me. I was trading Just... with 40 countries in the world in pirated software at that time. The <laughs> nuances of Sam and the Witch were irrelevant to me. <laughs> Just to say, it was it was a book by Margaret Stewart Barry and it illustrated by Linda Birch. Um, so Simon is a very sensible young schoolboy whose friend is a real witch and she's very silly and a huge show-off. 17th of November... 
Fireman Sam started, which ran forever, <laughs> by the looks of it, on and off for yes. like forever. Yes. It just went. Although, no, it was only on for two years. Then came back for a year. It was, or, or, no, it's all, well, I don't know. I can't make, can't make head nor tails of this timeline. It's a, it's a scratchy mess. What's going on there? Now, um, I, I happen to know a lot really about this Fireman show. Sam. Go on then. I know, a, I know a lot about this show because I have seen them all. I made a point of seeing them all. My, uh, I've had two children. Both my children were into this stuff. So, and I've had children across all of this span of the time scale of Fireman Sam. So my younger um, child watched all the early episodes when it was all stop motion. And my elder child watched all the episodes when it was all computer generated from China. So um, it's okay. interesting, this show. So it's obviously set in the fantasy world of Pontypandy, which is a, a mixture of two different places. I think it's Pontypreth and is another place as well. Something called something Pandy. Okay. And the nuances of the show are, you know, obviously... There are things that happen and firemen, fire people, firefighters need to be involved. So this show is just basically a children's show about that stuff. The original series was stop motion animation all the way... All the way to 1994. And then the Revival series um, was from 2003 to 2005. And that was also more advanced stop motion animation. Then from 2006, and bear in mind this IP has changed hands, it was computer animated and the production was moved to China where they produced wow. it from the Zing Zing studio. You, now, you there is have a, a problem full... with uh, Norman Price. Well, I do because, and I'll come to this, I have watched every episode of of this show i have every single one I, and I, I quite like it in in its own little way and there's an entire series overview which we'll link in the show notes however norman price is a character in this norman price is a kid who's a character in fireman sam who periodically in the early iterations of fireman sam was just a kid that had some tr- some some problems some issues he would just you know occasionally start fires or get into a situation fireman sam or fire people sam fire person sam We'd come to his rescue and everything would be great. And that's all good and, and well, because there was other characters that did stupid stuff as well, you know, and there was. However, that changed. That changed in 2005 for the season five. And, and it changed forever. From that moment forth, naughty uh, Norman Price became the devil of that village, <laughs> that place. And you don't, you don't have to believe me. You can look it up. You can go to the season <laughs> five believe, overview. And I've posted just some of the situations that Norman Price presented yeah, the Pontypandy Fire Station with. I've just scrolled the page of notes down and down and down. Exactly. And down. No, just in season five, for example, episode one, naughty Norman Price finds a way, finds fame by climbing to the summit of Pontypandy Mountain, but gets stuck on the mountain when Wooly, his lamb, lands on its head. In the second episode, Wooly's going to freeze to death. In the third episode, Station Officer Steel takes Norman Price and Mandy, the sheep, and they explore in a cave. But all of a sudden, the cave gets full and they get stuck. So naughty Norman Price has led them into danger again. <laughs> Later down the line, Norman Price accidentally leaves a lemonade bottle in the sun, which sets fire to the grass and causes major problems. In episode 10, Norman Price is as the biggest pumpkin in the pumpkin patch, but he sets it, puts a lantern in that fine, like a candle, and it sets on fire. Episode 17, Norman Price takes Squeaky the schoolmouse home, but Squeaky gets loose in town and eventually gets stuck in Bella's chimney. Number 18, <laughs> a heat wave puts Ponty Bandy's haystacks at risk, and Norman Price raises the alarm when James and Sarah end up trapped near a blazing haystack, a fire which he causes. Norman Price in episode 19 invents a fictitious friend to get double helpings of food, but it backfires. And in the end, what happens is he overloads a socket, which causes a fire, which causes... <laughs> do I need to go on? He's a dangerous... 
dangerous because there were seven or eight episodes here. I'm not going to go into all of those episodes, but I want you to go into that website and just look. That's season five. Every other episode from season five through to the later episodes, Naughty Norman Price is a fire-starting murderous crazy. (laughs) And I've said right from the get-go, if you want to solve the problems of Panty Pandy and all the fires, a ritual (laughs) killing of one person would solve the whole lot. It's terrifying, really, isn't it? It's unbelievable. He can cause trouble in the snow. In the last episode of season five, um, Norman Price decides to go and get something from one of the mountainsides when it's been snowy and gets stuck in an avalanche. The guy is crazy and dangerous. <laughs> Monster. Demon. Demon. It's a demon. Anyway, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Fiery finale. as a talent show and Norman Price is searching for an act. So he gets an idea before accidentally dropping water on Elvis's electric guitar, setting the stage on fire. Boys are, boys are menace. It's an episode which is not in episode in season five, where he throws a paper plane at a fire and it just sets on fire. And he's like, oh no, my paper plane sat on fire when I threw it at that fire. They got so bored of trying to navigate the nuances of how to create problems for Norman Price. He just threw flambustable, flambustable, flammable, flambustable, flambustable work, flambustable, flammable and combustible materials into just fires just to start them off because he's a loony and dangerous. Anyway, there we go. So let's move on. Move on to Phil. Let's move on. That was Fireman Sam. He's dangerous. Move on. (laughs) And Graham's problems with uh, Naughty Norman Price. I've watched him all. He's a a demon. Demon. (laughs) Dangerous demon. Um, I'm sorry for opening that door. I should have never mentioned it. (laughs) Demon. Uh, Let's move into films. quickly uh film 12th of november bellman and true which starred uh everyone's favorite comedy guy from lord of the rings theoden bernard uh, bernard hill i've, I've never, never seen, seen this before, have you seen so. it no 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 i put the blurb uh, in there but i've never seen it now no it's something to do with bank robbers and a security system and kids being kidnapped and whatever i don't know yep. it's a yep. it was a handmade film handmade studios it was a british film through and through 13th of november however was roxanne the steve martin version of the serrano de bergerac play um yep. which is yep, uh yep, yep. serrano de bergerac isn't it yes yeah it's not it's it's not it's okay this film steve martin's is good in it and there's some moments in it it's gentle comedy he's gone gentle comedy by this point so he's he's, he's easing off we saw him in the three three amigos Mm-hmm. Um, but he's definitely taken a step away from, you know, the anarch- anarchic elements of Mama Two Brains, the jerk, that kind of stuff. And he's moved away from them into a sort of a more, you know, more story-based, a bit more adult, softer comedy. You've noted here that you think he's making, mocking his physical deformity. Do you think that's the case? I think, yeah, because he's got a big nose in that. Which, yeah, which is know, yeah. Is that part of the main thing of that? Yeah, I think it is. I think that's part of the play. And so, but I think with, with this, is he, he, it's not about, he's well aware of that and he kind of owns it, doesn't he? So he's like in the opening, bit where he gets Maybe. called big nose someone in the bar and he says that's rubbish i can come up with 20 better insults than that yeah he does but at the same time he goes to a plastic surgeon who shows him images does, of what yeah. he could look like so. but in the end true love triumphs and she i think didn't she fall for him daryl hannah because the whole point mm, yes. is that he's he's she falls for the hunky fireman not fireman sam uh hunky new fireman and he he's an idiot and so yeah He's given all him of the his lines are written him. by Serrano. Yeah, yeah. Serrano, yeah. That guy. yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's not one of my favourites, but 
it's okay. After that, you could have waited a couple of weeks till the 25th of November where you are in for a treat. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Now, I watched this this afternoon. and so upon it's fresh in it, your I'm mind. Re- yeah, it's very fresh in my mind. Oh, God, it's so fresh. Because I realized upon watching it that I don't think I'd ever watched it before, you know. Not in full. There were parts Good. in this that I was I was sat agog. Proper agog at. Um, full agog. Yeah, this is awful. I mean, genuinely yep. awful. Um, yep. I mean, it, it's trying to be part of that Rocky, what what kind of similar, similar, it's similar in tone. It's what trying to, something to do with four films because Rocky four does the same sort of thing. Quest for peace. Mm-hmm. We can be together. We can live together. We can think. So there's something about, when you get to number four, you've got to say, I mean, Fast and the Furious forward and obviously, but, um, but there's something about four films around this time where they have to sort of try and be a bit nicer and try and bring the world to peace. True. But, oh my God, this is so crap. John Cryer's in it as well, isn't he? They're all in he it is. as well. So the, the, the original cast are all back. Yeah. They're all back. So Margot Kidder, Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, uh, the one who plays Jimmy Olsen, they're all back. Ned Beatty, I think, pops up at one point, I think, maybe, I can't remember. It's just, and then, and then in amongst all this, you have Nuclear Man. Terrible. With his long nails. <laughs> his deadly long yep. nails, which had me laughing. Nuclear nails. Yep. <laughs> just had me laughing my head off earlier on today. They're just dreadful. That 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 fight in space where they're just slapping each other. It's mm. just hilarious. And and somehow stop motion putting the Chinese uh, the Great Wall of China back together again. Just yeah. the they made the effects worse than Superman. The effects are worse. We're eight years on and they're they're worse than what we had in Superman one and two. Why is his costume changed to green every time he's on a blue screen? Because obviously blue would get because yeah, because the, there's tinges of it. So it's just so bad. Uh, there's there's so much wrong with it. The plot is ridiculous. He just he he defeats him by putting him in a lift. <laughs> it does yeah. That's how he defeats him. He tricks him to get him a, getting a lift, and then he throws the lift into the sun. I think oh, I don't know. At this point, I was losing the will to live. His nuclear nails give him a cold. I <laughs> <laughs> do. Uh, the bit where he picks up the uh, Statue of Liberty and no one seems to notice. <laughs> no, it's not good. And then he throws it into the thing. My Statue of Liberty is massive and it's falling down. It's like someone's lobbed it. Someone's bought a toy one and just thrown it. And then, yeah, as he's, Superman's flying it back and he scratches the back of his neck. Uh, it's so bad, this film. So, so bad. I, I wasn't sure what to expect. but And it all comes about because some kid said to me, and the whole, uh, what's her name, Margot Hemingway character, and, and when she tries to be all sexy on the desk and stuff, it's so bad. And all that's and all about getting... At the end of Superman 2, Lois Lane, he kisses her, doesn't he, and makes her forget. Is that the end of yes, 2? Yes, yes. That all goes out the window when he just jumps off the building with her, <laughs> and then at the and then and then later, nuclear man takes Margot Hemingway into space. Yes, far away from the Earth. <laughs> yes, she would she would be very cold and yes. dead. Yeah, you're applying logic to <laughs> things that don't <laughs> need it. So bad, so bad. Oh Jesus! Go on, you have at it because <laughs> I can no, take it. Th- what what can you say about Superman Four? This was a film that was horrifically cut. There was forty minutes of footage removed from the final thing. That's the a good thing. Was redu- if it's anything like what's was, in it, the budget was changed from something like forty odd million to like twenty million or maybe less. Christopher Reeve demanded six million of that and demanded that he had his own story. So this story is written by Christopher Reeve. That the whole oh, nuclear God. man thing and all that is is Christopher Reeve's design. He designed that. Um, it's ranked as one, of, as one of the worst films of all time and certainly one of the worst films of the 80s. And in the list of films that are utter shite, it's up there with Heaven's Gate, Taz and the Ape Man, Bolero, Howard Duck, Caddyshack 2 and Mac and Me. None of those things are good. No, he's, he's Taz bad. in there. They're all 
all yeah. bad. Ishtar, they're all bad. They're all very, very bad. This film bombed at box office mm. for many, many reasons. In his autobiography, which was called Still Me, um, and of course he was he wrote this after he was horrifically injured in a, a horse riding accident where he was rendered paraplegic mm. um, he wrote when he described the movie we were also hampered by budget constraints and cutbacks in all departments Canon had nearly 30 projects in the works at the time and Superman 4 received no special consideration for example Connor and Rosenthal wrote a script in which Superman lands on 42nd Street and walks down the double yellow lines to the United Nations where he gives a speech. If that had been a scene in Superman 1, we would have actually got shot on 42nd Street. Richard Donner would have choreographed hundreds of pedestrians and vehicles and cut to people gawking out of office windows at the sight of Superman walking down the street like the Pied Piper. Instead, we had to shoot at an industrial park in England in the rain with about 100 extras, not a car in sight and a dozen pigeons thrown in for atmosphere. (laughs) Even if the story had been brilliant, I don't think that we could ever have lived up to the audience's expectations with this approach. So the truth is that everything about Superman 4 is a compromise of something that should have been and is less, and it's massively shit. Yeah. Which includes the way I mean, it looked, the costumes and everything else. I mean, yeah, he's literally fighting a character from, from an 80s sort of German metal band. Um, yeah, absolutely. Nuclear Man. It just is, it's so awful. Now, there's loads of websites devoted to Superman for it has kind of a cult following. And there's one in particular, which we'll put in the show notes, which is a load of things, 10 things I think you might not know about Superman 4. And I'm not going to go through all those those things. You can do that in your own time. All you really need to know is that everyone who was in this film hated it. Everyone that was involved in it hated it. And it is clearly played out in front of the cameras. So when you see the fight between Superman and, and Nuclear Man, it's shockingly awful. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody thought that Superman 3 was going to be successful. This is the irony is that they all thought, they all said, you know what, if Superman 4 makes about $40 million, we'll make Superman, sorry, Superman 3 makes $40 million, we'll make Superman 4. And everyone was like, Superman 3 is never going to make that because it's crap. It did. It made 80 plus million. So Superman 4 had to be made. But 6 million of the revenue for that went to went to Christopher Reeve. So he, he had to when he was alive. Hold well, himself accountable for the shocking output of what happened. And there's a couple of horrific special effects, which we'll post in our show notes. <laughs> There's so many bad... There's not one good effect in it. Terrible thing is, I like Christopher Reeve as Superman. I liked his approach. I liked that style. I liked Superman 3. But 4 is such dog egg. It's really... It's, it's hard to like, even for a person that really likes Superman and those that era of those films. It's awful. Terrible. It is. Terrible. It is awful. There we go. <laughs> Superman 4. Quest for Arse. Uh, 26th of November, which probably should have gone and seen this instead. Uh, it's Cry Freedom, which is the Richard Attenborough film about the South African activist Stephen Biko. Um, yes. Yes. I have seen it many, many years ago. I haven't seen it recently. I was going to watch that again today, but I didn't get enough time. I remember it being very good. It's very worthy. It's Kevin Klein and an early Denzel Washington as, as uh, Stephen Biko, I think. And it is it is, it is very good. But I've never seen it. I should make a point of trying to see it. It does look very good, So, I, but yeah. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. It's it's, it's quite worthy. It's just a good, you know, one of those yeah. stories that she's very sad. It looks good. The, the trailer was great. It's. I think I should follow it up, so I will do. And finally, at 27th, of November, you could have gone and seen Inner Space. I really like Inner Space. Inner Space is good. It's a, it's a, you know, in comparison this with Superman Four. This is a, you know, a decent slice of sci-fi. I mean, it's based on Fantastic Voyage, isn't it? 
So it's a mm. sort of a, a more up to date version of Fantastic Voyage. Borrows from that, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's well it's it's that because it's Dennis Quaid in gets shrunk down and ends up mistakenly inside Martin Short, doesn't he? <laughs> He does, yeah, yeah. He gets injected in there by accident. I think this is actually quite a funny film. It's a tour de force for Martin Short. It's directed by Joe Dante. It's it's produced by Steven Spielberg. It's written by the guy that wrote Leaf Weapon 3 and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's got Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, amongst others. This is a powerhouse of production and cast and script and i think it works this is as good a film for me as as back to the future i think it's very underrated in its own little way but there's some amazing sequences in this film that are really 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 good and it's such fun so i really enjoy it i've watched in the space loads of times i think it's brilliant i really really like it and martin short is is amazing in this film it really showed how versatile he was so i really like it it's great great film he didn't do much after this did he we went on no he's in like um things like um the three amigos and stuff like that but he's a really 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 good actor and really comedic and his physical performance in this is amazing so well like i said he came back i mentioned it recently with steve martin but he did the uh only murders in the building that was um on uh on on disney so that's that's a really good series if you haven't watched that i can highly recommend that uh but no yeah it's good film in a space i think that's it there you go that's our film and tv for this month so what what have we looked at we looked at a controversial poem even that sounds stupid uh with v damon and debbie became a bloody soap bubble uh we had uh furore a a man kissing another man's forehead in eastenders uh player cards right went off air for seven seven years whilst bruce forsyth rejuvenated himself by hanging upside down in a cave the gemini factor which was according to graham was awful uh perfect spy which was best loser headliners which inspired countless other shows by the sounds of it simon the which which we don't care for uh we went through a bit of a rena- uh, information blast with uh, fireman sam and we learned all about naughty norman price the devil the devil child uh bellman and true in films which you don't know about roxanne which we liked superman 4 the quest for peace which is awful 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 uh then cry freedom and finally the rather good inner space that's that we're going to come back we're going to take a quick break sorry um and then we'll come back we've got five more games to do i don't know if we got oh we've got one um we've got one crap vert to look at as well so stick around and we'll be back after this break Sun, Sea and Chippy Tea to our sponsor, DavidHearnWriter.com. Let's take another listen to his amazing new book, Escape from the Commodore 64. At last, Sarah thought, her moment of joy ended swiftly as a robot started towards her. Grappling with the puzzle pieces that fell from her hands like skittles in a bowling alley, she gathered up as much as she could and dived behind the armchair. Her breath came in shallow, panicked spurts. Silence. The crackle of electricity stopped and the mechanical whir of the robots unspooled, leaving them slumped indolently on the spot. Sarah chanced to look over the top of the armchair. What she saw was a still-life diorama that was unlike any nightmare she'd ever had. "'That's what you get,' she whispered. "'I've seen friendlier Daleks.' She sunk down farther into her hiding place, waiting for any sign from Nell. Had she even made it free from the top floor? What if everything had stopped because she'd short-circuited the system?' Fried herself out of existence? Something pulled at her t-shirt, bringing her to her feet, and she screamed. As the mayor of Targ, I declare this book awesome. Escape from the Commodore 64 audiobook is out right now. Visit davidhernwriter.com today. What are you waiting for?
we are back. Uh, we are back. We've got five more games, as I said. So let's just let's just not be around the bus. Let's just get straight in because our first one is well, it's another interesting one, another good one, maybe. Uh, this is Enlightenment. Enlightenment. Druid two. So Akamantor is back. He's back, Graham. After being banished 103 years ago by the Druid Hasranax, he's back with all his demon princes to try and conquer the land of Belorn. And once again, you take on the role of Hasranax to stop the evil spreading. So that's where we are. This is Druid 2. It's more Druid. Let's get out of the way. It's more Druid. This was produced by the same duo as Druid, and that is Andrew Bailey and Dean Carter. And we spoke of Dean Carter in the Druid review and how he would go on to do Fable at all. But Andrew Bailey um, would also go on to have a long career in the games industry. And he's presently at Relic Entertainment, having worked on things like Age of Empires 4 and Warhammer games and loads of other stuff. So this team that make this, you know, would go on to have a fairly you know, impressive pedigree between them. So you can see that, like we said about Druid, the design ethos is heavy in these games. So anyway, Druid 2 Enlightenment builds on the first game. Uh, but when you start playing this, you could be mistaken for thinking it's very much more of the same. And and to some degree, that that is that's true, really. Druid 2 looks very like its forebear. It has the same graphical style and gameplay. So the game is seen from the top down, uh, and a little druid wanders about the landscape in his blue robe, casting spells and the like. It's obviously a, a gauntlet variant in its presentational style, but changes things up, obviously, from that game by, like the first game, setting the game on land rather than in dungeons. Um, so we're above ground rather than underground, as we are always in Gauntlet. So this allows for a much greater variety of locations and settings as you move uh, from level to level. Um, and, you know, the landscape can be changed much easier than being just in dungeons and walls and grey floors. So in the first game, <coughs> pardon me, in the first game, uh, the UI took up the top third of the screen and the game happened in the bottom third um, or the bottom two thirds, uh, top half, whatever. Here, they've swapped it. So the game takes place in the top third strangely enough top half whilst the ui takes up the bottom half don't know why it's another another change is due to the ui having more elements the game window does not take up the entire top two-thirds of the screen it takes up the, the top right is is uh, left for the druid's health which is represented by a twisted pillar it's like a pillar or a piece of rope that slowly depletes as you take hits so the playing area is a little bit smaller than what we had in druid so as noted, the, the UI is different in this one. So in the first one, it was, you know, you had your three spells, you had told with your golem, your health and things like that, and the golem's health. It was, you didn't need much information in that one, but there's more to take on board in this one. So in this one, you now have space for up to eight spells and to be carried at any one time. Uh, there were four in the other one. Um, and they were set, so you would f- might find these spells like chaos or the golem and things like that. And they were they were set in stone. Here you c- you can pick and choose, and you can you can basically ass- you know assign them to any of your eight slots. So any of these eight little slots in the UI, and when you do assign them, uh, it does a little graphical representation of any of the spells show up in that slot. Uh, that also includes keys and things like that. So keys also have to be put in a slot. Um, as well um, to the left of these slots is your shooting power so there's a little graphic of a lightning bolt and there's a bar underneath it and as you fire as you fire that bar sort of depletes so you can fire three times at once before it's fully left out and then you have to stop for a while and let it build back up again until you can shoot again to the right of the spells there's a window uh, a sort of open window where text appears to inform you of things in the game like you're standing on this spell or you can't cast that spell here or druid casts this spell or stuff like that beneath that there's an empty window um an empty like bar that slowly fills up as you progress through the game um and this is supposed to be your 
your um, trip or your sort of progress towards enlightenment. And you need to fill that bar up as you progress through the game. And that's your rating that you get at the end of the game. I think that's how it works out. And on the right of this UI, there are some empty spaces um, for your golem friend. So if you use the golem, the golem will appear in here and it shows you what he's doing. So whether he's following you, um, whether he's standing still, whether he's heading off in his own direction or whatever. Um, it also shows its health um, and how it is being controlled. Okay, I'll come to that in a bit. So the meat of the game, though, is the same as the first. You wonder about the landscape. Um, it's kind of a maze-like, so you've got to sort of work your way through this landscape. You shoot in the ever-spawning enemies and you try and make your way through. There's 15 levels in this game. So 10 of these levels are now landscape and areas of Balorn. I think there were eight in the first one. Um, and they are linked by markers at the size of the level. So there's little spaces at the side of each level. So if you go far right, far left, up, down, there's little marks. And if you walk through them, that's how you progress from left to right. So you can go back and forth between the levels quite easily. I think the first one, it was pretty much all underground. You went down steps in the first one, and it was pretty much all underground. This is all on top of ground, mostly. And the five remaining levels are the five levels, I think, of Akamantor's Tower that you have to ascend until you can finally get to Akamanto and kill him. So there's demon princes as well. They're dotted about the land. Uh, three of them exist in the land of Balorn. I think there's one in snow, one in the fire, and one somewhere else. You've got to kill all these. Um, and the other two are in the first two uh, first two sort of floors of Akamantor's tower. The thing to say about this game is it's tough. This is a tough game. Um, and making your way through it in single player will take some doing. So it's a good job that, just like in the first game, the golem can be controlled again by a second player. Um, and this makes for a very quite enjoyable co-op experience, as ever. So co-oping with someone rather than, you know, like in Gauntlet, whereas um, the, the, you, you, it's always better in two players. These kind of things are better with more players, and this is, this is no different. So the golem here is like the first one. They can't shoot, but they, they've got very, very high strength levels or high you know, healing or high health bar. And so all they do is they can walk into and they kill off everything before it can get to the get to the druid. And that's your point. You're, pr you're a protection. You're a protector. You're like a bouncer. You're the, you're the, you're the uh, druid's minder, basically. Um, it could also always be just Terry Strong, this golem. And if I'm honest, it needs to be played that way to really make progress because the enemies are relentless. They are relentless. And trying to fight them off, control a golem, sort out slots in the inventory for spells and decides whether to pick up a spell or not, it's, it's almost overwhelming in single player. Because because this game has a much bigger arsenal of spells to discover, there's 25 of them, in fact. And I'm not going to go through them all, but they range from buffs to the player and their arsenal. So, you, you know, you can get extra health and strength and things like that to, you can lay down walls of fire and water to stop the enemies coming towards you to kill them on touch. You could just, just smart bomb type spells, uh, which you need to use at certain points to kill off the demon princes or things like that there's food and, and health and recharges there's holy crucifixes to ward off the undead um and the final spell you'll find is the white orb and you need this one to kill akamantor himself so there's loads for the player to keep an eye on at all time and the problem is because the action is so relentless in the main game you can mitigate this by sort of hiding in corners and use the ai against itself because the ai will always head toward you and if there's a wall in the way they're not smart enough to make their way around the wall they'll just kind of wait until they can get a beeline towards you so you can find little areas to take a bit of a breather but they're, they're just endless so these enemies they will range as well so there are loads of different types of enemies in the opening level it's like the undead so there's zombies spawning they're supposed to be because you start off the game in your i think ishtar i think is where you start is your your, vill your village and so it's the it's basically it's the denizens of ishtar rising from their graves to come and kill you there's also skeletons and things like that as you progress there's all kinds of weirder enemies but there's, there's 
gelatinous slimes there's monsters and all kinds of weird stuff so there's you know it's fantasy based you know monster design here some of the levels as well they're also even shrouded in darkness so you need to find a light spell um, and that casts a, a pool of light around you which helps you navigate because all you know most of these levels are kind of maze-like like we said about qdex really it's not as not as similar sort of thing but you know the levels are mazes so you could you know there's walls and stuff you've got to find your way around the trees it might be walls it could be pits it can be uh, cacti it could be anything but things can block you off so you've got to kind of make your way around it and in these levels made of darkness you'll just see the sort of outline of the creatures heading towards you and you you don't know if they can get at you because you don't know if there's a wall in the way or whatever and it's tricky so the game this game really does build on the first game in almost every way so there's you know there's more in the ui there's more for you to do there's more levels there's more enemies um there's more spells there's there's the great variety in how you can approach the world so you don't just, you know from that first level you can go off in different ways and, and and it expands upon the options open to the player and like i said you can approach the levels in any way they want because from the opening world you can go north south east or west you know you, you can get to either way and just head off in whichever direction you want trying to figure out your own way through it don't go south though because that leads to a, a land in darkness and you probably won't have a light spell at that point so you, you you won't know where the hell you're going but even so there's nothing you could do it if you wanted and try it um, you can just go at this in any, in any order you want to approach it. Whereas I think the first bounder, sorry, bounder, sorry, the first druid was very much in, um, you know, linear level order one, two, so you, you made your way through to get to the steps to go deeper and down and down and down. I think that's how that, if I remember rightly. Um, and that's how that one worked. This one's a much more open ended affair and allows you a bit more freedom to how to approach it. But this kind of works. Whereas, you know, we look, this is reminding me a little bit of what rebounder did um in the way that rebounder did something similar um uh, but, but in the way that, that um you know took the original game and up the ante that up the ante in the wrong way so that did things that we didn't really care about whereas this keeps it thematically consistent with the first game you know it was still in a fantasy druid spells monsters maze golems all that is still consistent with the first game there's just more of it um and more to sort of play at and more to try and get your head around the only thing with that is really, it, I think it really needs two players to go at this. So probably two, player two would be controlling the golem and helping on the keyboard while the druid is walking around trying to pick up spells because spells are in, in the landscape, these they're not in chests anymore. They're these little marks. And the, you know, and, the, and when you go to them, it'll say, oh, you are standing on a dark, dark white orb spell. You are standing on a light spell. You're standing on a strength spell. And so you basically pick which you want. You press the appropriate key on the keyboard, and then you press the, pl- the plus key to, to pick it up. Um, and you can you can get rid of them as well. You can drop them. You can you know, if you want to get you want to replace something with something good. And so it kind of all works, but it keeps that core game loop the same. It just builds around it. So if you get two players, it's really hard in one player. But if you get two players. Like Druid was. I always found Druid too hard in one player. So in that respect, I think this is a pretty, you know, it got 85%, which I think is a little bit low. I think, again, this is another Sizzler for me. I think this is a worthy sequel to Druid. I think they've done good here. Um, and I like, you know, what's going on. So just, you know, they progressed the story. They've done more of the same. They've just expanded everything. But the right things, I think, whereas in Bat Rebounder, we saw how that can be done in the wrong way. This is done in the right way. What did you think? How did you, did you get on revisiting the land of... Uh, I mean, goodness me, the music straight away instantly made me think of the legendary demo group Fairlight because that's like the Fairlight music. So as much as it's Enlightenment by in Druid 2, that's the Fairlight 
music. And I heard that music used by so many of their demos and the cracks, it's ridiculous. And so aside from that, what we've got here is with Druid 2, I mean, what's not to like is everything I liked about the first game is here, only there's more to do with more spells and it's bigger environments, there's more of them. Graphics are essentially the same thing, aren't they? There's no real variant from that. The controls are kind of the same. There's more enemies, but they're kind of the same in the way that you kill them. The maps are bigger, but they're kind of the same. There's more of them. It's a sequel. It's a proper sequel. Yes, exactly. And as such, it's a great game because it's a great game because it's a sequel. It builds on the first game. So there's a lot to learn, I think, from making games that are sequels and and learning from it. Because we've we've gone through a few sequels during the time of this podcast, and some of them have been successful. Many of them have not. The principle of this game is that they take the core concepts of Druid, expand on it a little bit, but keep the general central tenet the same that is a winning formula for this because this central tenet was good now the problem you get with that is if you have to like druid to want to continue to druid 2 is there a good in for druid 2 people that never encounter druid i don't know and does it matter really anyway i like druid 2 i like the presentation i like the style it's all from druid really like you said, they shifted the menu from the top to the bottom and there's a few navigational shifts, but and there's 25 more spells to remember and there's loads of other stuff to do. They've upped the ante on Druid, which is what you want, but they've kept the gameplay and the core idea the same. That is also what you want. I think it got a bit of a bum's rush in the Zap Review, 85%. I'd have given it higher. I think that it's a really worthwhile sequel to Druid and it's genuinely quite good and it follows nicely from that logic. So what's, isn't, what is not to like? Why did it gets such a you know and and admittedly 85% ain't bad but at 895 85% it's not progressing it's just like you know if you like and maybe that's the thing it's more of the same so you, you get more of the same numbers but I'd like to have seen more innovation in this maybe 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 they could have done something a little bit different maybe that's what Zap were trying to say that there are things that they could have done better in this and if they had of it might have scored higher there's they could have expanded the world of druid a little bit more but it's a fine line isn't it i liked i like druid i like druid too principally the same game with a little bit more stuff so is this like um gauntlet and gauntlet 2 i suppose we'll find out i liked it anyway so i like it good good yeah so do i um i don't know we'll see gauntlet 2 is coming up soon isn't it so i'm not sure i don't remember much about gauntlet 2 i have to say no i don't i don't um We'll see how that one how that one fares, but no, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think there's I think there's enough progress in this from one to two um, to justify it. I think there's a lot lot more in it, but there you go, Druid two enlightenment. Did it all? Did it have a piece of speech on this? Or was, am I, was I yeah, misremembering yeah. that? Uh, yeah, it, I, no, it had enlightenment. Yeah, just didn't have it on the version we played. No, it did. What did the, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I missed yeah. it then. Because there's well, a little pause. It's like there's a little text on the screen. It says. Are you ready for? And then it pauses, and then enlightenment. Oh, I was pressing fire. (laughs) I must have skipped it. Never mind. Uh, There we go. Druid 2, we like that. Let's move along. And Graham, tell us what it's all, what it's like to have tunnel vision. The future. The future of racing is here, and it's now for £2. Um, the creator of this game is Graham Bly, and the title screen is Bav, good old Bav, and the musician was Graham Bly. Now there are this this if there was ever a game that is Marmite, this is the game. 
Some people like this game from Racket. Some people like this game from these designers and these developers. And some people hate it. There are people that say it's proto-wipeout, that there's space for that argument and that this is this has elements of that and there's quite a lot to it. There's other people that just say it's a blocky monstrosity that makes you want to pull your eyebrows out. Um, and there's everything in between. Tunnel Vision is a game that is set in the distant future where there's one or two players and you have to drive a craft around your various tunnels or tracks um, and you have to capture an orb and take the orb to the finish line. So you've got to capture a ball, take it to the finish line. Um, both the you and the player you're against are equipped with lasers and there's small crafts that otherwise thought you. This is actually a little bit like a weird version of Mario Kart. There's elements of Mario Kart logic in this. And I think, if I was absolutely honest... There's bits of Pit Stop 2, there's bits of Mario Kart, there's bits of a few 3D games we've played along the way. This is a bit of a hodgepodge of ideas, and it's two quid. And I have to tell you, there's some nice nice programming and nice things in here as well. This, I think, got properly kicked in the balls by Zap. Zap gave this a particularly crap review. I think they gave it something in the uh, 40 to 50%, 48%, I think. So the idea of this game is that you race around the track, there's a there's some kind of orb that you have to try and capture or grab, and you have to scoot that orb to the end of the level, to the end of that track, and you win that track. And if you do that, now, if that was the total remit of this game at £2.99, you might thinking okay but there's more to that there's a track designer you can there's a lot of parameters you can adjust there's a lot to this game and the way this game plays out in terms of its split screen view is very pit stop too so there's play one is at the top play two is at the bottom you've got on the right hand side you've got your map which is the map of the track and you've got to scoot your way around that you get this kind of 3d view but you kind of you know in that kind of tradition of when i want to say 3d imagine a square or a rectangle zooming towards you and then another rectangle zooming towards you and that that kind of view it's that kind of that kind of 3d-esque thing mm-hmm. and you've got a sprite that you control and you've got to navigate this thing around this track if you fly off the track or you go to your left you get this kind of ziggy zaggy sort of thing on the screen you get some feedback you can shoot so you can hamper the play that you're against it's one or two player um and you can really sort of navigate and fly your way around now there's a lot of argument because th- this is a game i think this is quite divisive what you have to remember at the heart of this is that this is a 199 game so as part of that 199 logic is it going to be as polished and as have the old production developers of maybe a bigger game well this actually does there's a course designer you can design your own tracks um so there's a little bit yeah. long bit of longevity in that that's not dissimilar to a little bit of kickstart kickstart to logic in there you can fly around these tracks and the game runs seamlessly at a good rate of knots it's not going to set your life on fire there's not lots of lots of opposition when you find you know it's you versus the other player one you versus two player there's not lots of other players in the game that are going to hamper your progress but the way it plays and the way you scoot around you've got a sprite at the bottom and you're flying it around a bit like a kind of the kind of standard pole position type game but this is fast and it's kind of futuristic. And there is there is a bit of a lineage to wipe out in this. There's no doubt about that. This has a bit of logic about that. It does feel a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. And so for $1.99, um, I think that this Tunnel Vision game is actually pretty good. The graphics are a bit basic, but they all function in the way that a game should. There's a lot of options when you choose the game, when you start the game. So um, you can easily go from... Um, I mean, the, the sprites in the game and this kind of 3D maze view are kind of basic, but that's the context of this game. That's what you are. It's not a Formula One racing game. You've got fuel, you've got speed, you've got shields, you've got those things, you've got to get the orb to the side, so you've got to navigate that kind of space. It doesn't do 
more than that in that kind of context of the game logic, which is great because that's all you need really to know. So when you're flying around the track, trying to figure things out, you've gone through all the various game options. So you can choose a channel, you can choose the number of orbs, you can choose the skill level, you've got timeouts in there as well. You've got a tunnel editor, you could choose the game. I think there's a lot to this game for £2. And I think it's definitely worth more than the Zap review gave it. Now, my cons- that consensus is also argued on Lemon64, where the reviews of the game are all saying the same thing. This game was given a harsh brush by Zap. It sort of leans into that kind of did they play it kind of world. I, I played this quite extensively, and I have to say, for two quid, I'd have had a lot of fun with this back in the day. I thought this was good. So I enjoyed Tunnel Vision. I think it deserved more in the 70s to 80s in a review for me. What about you? Yeah, I'm kind of um, very similar. I've no idea. There's a lot of what you've said is what have you? What if Pit Stop 2 had you collect a ball and take it back to the start line? Oh, and you can change direction as well. And it's in the future in a tunnel and you get attacked by a Christmas bell, which is what that green thing looked like to me. How does that sound? If you'd like that, then you may like Tunnel Vision from Racket. This is a strange future sport which tries to mold Formula One with, uh, I thought it was, I don't know, I was trying to think of the closest thing. And the closest thing I can get is like rollerball because you've got to collect something and get it back to the start, the roller derby or something like that. There's not much to this though, um, but it's, uh, and it's weird, both amusing. I find it amusing that the tracks are based on Formula One tracks. So they're, they're Formula mm, One absolutely. tracks, um, which is okay. But I thought, you know, the world of sci fi at your fingertips, and you could have had loads of weird and wonderful track designs. Like, as you noted, you can create your own as a track designer. It's not terrible. This is all right. Um, it's just it's just a little empty um, and, and a bit lacking in, 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 in real stuff to do. I thought it's, 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 it's all right. I think it'd be better in two players, most of these things would be. And I've noted that there's, there's elements of things like Wipeout in there with futuristic cars going around a track shooting each other i mean that sounds very familiar um and it's a few years before we got going to get something like mario kart but but it's all right it, it feels like it just feels like it needs it just needs a bit beefing up but uh, the idea is maybe just a little too early for the tech to do it justice is where it's kind of where i landed it, it just you know if there's a bit more oomph to this i don't know what, what it would be whether a soundtrack playing or something while you're racing still you know for two quid if you had something to play with i reckon you'd get a fair chunk of enjoyment out of this as you battle beef beat each other up trying to get that ball flipping back and forth going back and forth around the track and trying to get it back especially if you know set it to like you got to score three or five it'll go on for quite a while i think yeah it's worth more than 48 percent, way more um and i think that Either, either they only played it in one player and didn't give it a proper chance, kind of looked at it and went, oh, it looks really boring. And, and didn't, again, didn't give it much of a go. Um, but th- those visuals, and they move fast, the split screen, that, two, that 3D sort of split screen affair moves pretty fast once you get going. Corners work, everything works. And I, and I like the fact that when you get the ball, you lose, t- it's just a little bit, you lose 10 miles per hour from your speed. So you can only go 190 rather than the 200 yeah, top speed. there's a lot of speed. good parameters in this game. There is. So that sort of thing, so that the one behind you can catch you up slowly, but it's a case of, oh, it leads to, I've got to get to the finish line, but they're trying to catch you up and shoot you. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this. It was all right. Two quids worth of futuristic racing. Yeah, fine by me. There you go. Tunnel vision. Maybe Zap got tunnel vision on this one somehow. Don't know. Let's move along. To our next one, which is a full pricer, nine quid. This is Taipan. Taipan. So, and this is another book conversion from, from James Clavell. You don't get book conversions from James Clavell these days, do you? That's weird. Uh, this time, it's the second book. It is the second book in the Asian saga. The first was a book called King Rat. Uh, Taipan was second. Shogun was third. Noble House, fourth. Whirlwind was fifth. And finally, the last book in the Asian saga with Gaijin. 
Um, however, although Shogun is the third book, this is the first book chronologically, um, and this is the second book in both the written and time sense. Um, the original book was written in 1966, um, and this is set in 1842, and it's following the end of the first Opium War in China, I think, um, and it is the British seizure of Hong Kong. So that's where this is based. That's the back end of this. So essentially, there's been a big war for opium and stuff, and Britain have seized Hong Kong, and trade routes are opening, and there's all this going on, and it's trying, it's trying to make inroads into China. So uh, in the game, you take the role of one of the main characters from the book. I've never read the book. Just as an aside, I've never read the book. So there you go. Let's get it out there. So you take the role of one of the main characters. That character is Dirk Struan. Stran, Stran. Uh, and your goal is to reap the rewards of the new trading routes open around Hong Kong and make your fortune. So at the start of the game, you have nothing. You're basically uh, in the streets of Canton, I think it is, and you have nothing and you must wander the streets. And eventually you make your way to a restaurant and they offer you a meal and you go, mm, I don't have anything, no money. And then you are th- ushered through to the back room where you are offered $300,000 and told that uh, this must be repaid in full in six months time so that's the game you've got six months so you start on january 1st and the game goes up to july 1st so you've got six months and the issue the you know the aim of the game is to make more money have more than three hundred thousand dollars by first uh, of july pay it back and then have whatever left over I, th- I believe is the point of the game so taking them taking the money you set off on your trading quest there are a number of things you must buy uh, from around the town before you can start out the first you need is a ship which you buy from the bank. Um, uh, then a quick trip to the bar sees you buying some crew or hiring crew for the ship. You go to the warehouse and you can buy food and goods to trade. Um, there are also seedy men. Seedy men are lit- loitering in the streets and they offer you mysterious boxes, which you can buy for, for loads of money. $54,000. Like, what is in these boxes? What is going on? Um, I bought one anyway. Didn't really tell me what was in it, though. I don't know why. There you go. It's usually illicit goods, I believe. There's also a brothel and a restaurant, which you can frequent as well for pleasure only. I went to the brothel, and it said, you come out a little more tired than normal, but happy. Okay. There's also a map and a sextant to buy. (laughs) Seems about right, yeah. Uh, And lighter of pocket. There's also a map and a sextant to buy, and that helps you navigate the waters somehow, but whatever. Once this is done, you can set sail to the nearest port and try and make money on anything you have bought so on the goods and uh, on the goods that you have bought whilst traveling over water you may get set upon by pirates or other merchants and you just fight them off or make it to port or else a watery grave will be your final destination and that's that should be your game over that's about it really there's also some gambling mini games uh, in the ports as well which you can try your look at uh, i suppose there's one where beasts fight there's another one which is kind of like a lucky uh, there's these three dominoes which turn over and there's these and there can be one of five things and it's first one of these five things to get to 10 and you bet you know one of them's got 100 to one chance one's got three to one chance whatever and you bet on them and, and that's all right i quite enjoyed that bit that was probably the most enjoyable bit for me uh but essentially it's a trading game so it, for me this felt very similar maybe a bit more wandering to that pirates of the barbary coast that we played it's only just around hong kong instead so whilst on port the so whilst you're in port sorry the game is represented uh in a side-on view of the town and your chunky main character is quite tall the, the characters are quite tall you, you wander left and right along the paths of the town you can go up and down into the town so it's that kind of you know there's a path leading up there might be a path leading down you can go through them um and you wander about you find the buildings that you can go into like the bank or the restaurant or the brothel or the warehouse or the whatever and you just go into 
them and you don't when you go into them it's just text only you just get some text to tell you if you want to buy stuff or whatever there's other patrons of the port and they're ambling around um and is it the graphics are all a bit chunky the sprites are okay they look like humans vaguely wandering about but it's all very very chunky and not very it's all right but you know it's not the best i've seen but the area for each town it's it's not that big so you know it doesn't take too long to find the bank or the warehouse or the restaurant and so on so you'll wander about you'll find these places you'll do some trading you'll try and sell some goods you'll make some money or you'll lose some money or whatever you'll go back to your boat and that's it really you can set sail again the sailing part is a top-down view um and left and right rotate your ship as you trek along the coast so in both parts of the game the main window at the top is where you play the game so that's where the graphics are and uh, and along the bottom is a series of icons that change whether you're in the main game or you're on the boat. Um, and they can be accessed by pressing the space bar or they will automatically initiate if you enter a bank or warehouse and so on. So on land, the, the icons you've got are buy, sell, pick up, load and save. Um, and on water, they are map, lower or raise the sails, switch between sailing and combat, you can feed the crew uh, or check the horizon with a telescope. And, and that's really about it. So, you know, the visuals are chunky, but they do the job. There's a looping tune that plays throughout that's from Peter Clark, um, and it soon gets annoying. I couldn't find any information on who actually made this people-wise, so I don't know who who actually did this port of the game. Peter Clark did the music. The sound effects are nothing particularly special. They're just there. There's music and whatever. There's some interesting touches that you can get to, like you can press gang people into service, but you know you need a club for that. But the wandering around the towns and the really slow sailing, my sailing was really slow, um, it really starts to get to you after a while. Um, there's also the issue of the game having to load between the towns and the sailing, and it's quite a lengthy load as well. And this breaks the flow of the game, so it's like a just like a pav loader just kicks in when you as soon as you head out onto the water and you have to wait for you know a good chunk, and then you get back to the town and loads in again and blah blah blah. It's all right. The towns all look really similar as well, so you can quite easily be at the same time it's, it's never really clear where you are there's no particularly particularly difference between them the layouts are slightly different but yeah you know you, you could be anywhere the flavor text when trading or going to a restaurant is simple and it's not very engaging there's not much in the way of writing in this either consider it's from a book so yeah it's all a bit meh if, if you want a game about trading there are better games about by now even things like that ancient star trader and having to load the two parts you know especially if you're playing this on tape oh god that must have been trying so if you're playing this on disc which is probably the better way to play it or now on an emulator go for the infinitely better pirates it's more varied and it's just better at what it does and has more options and more variables and just just better i don't know if this stays true to the original novel i got no idea i've never read it but you know this game for me got dull i don't mind trading games i don't don't mind them but the trading needs to be you know get me to the trading this takes ages and it's it's you know got very dull very quickly and you and you're really going to need to like that pace to tune it's pace sorry a pace of this and and the tune that is constantly playing to want to stay with this if you like the music you might just keep going but i don't know um i think this was developed by someone called sentient software but i'm not sure who that consists of i didn't particularly enjoy taipan what about you? It was never going to be something that attracted me, really. I remember at the time thinking that the adverts looked really good in the magazines, and I liked the Shogun book, the Shogun book, and I liked the TV series. So there was a good case for me to like this, the Taipan. It's from the same author. I hated the film adaptation with Brian Brown playing um, Dirk Struan, and so this was on a back foot unless something was special about it and something was going to be really good. Unfortunately, none of those things were the case. Um, my main issue with this game is, even for the replay, um, that it was just really bloody boring. 
walk around, fight the right, find the right things and the, the people, walk some more, all boring, get a loan, buy a ship, plod around more, boring. You can set sail having gathered up the things to trade and then it's trading so you can just go around and trade and it's just boring. Um, <laughs> this is kind of like pirates in its own sort of boring way, but it doesn't have any of the interest or the anything else to do it. The graphics are kind of weird. It doesn't pull anything of those things together into a coherent experience. The music is nice, I suppose. It's the type of music I do remember. Um, but the graphics aside of that title screen were really odd. And the white borders during the game is weird. It's a weird thing to want to do. It felt yeah. bitty yes. and not well pulled together. And it's just not for me. I, I was I ended up just wandering around, going in and out of things, maybe trying to do stuff. And that's my least favorite thing to do in a game. Least favorite. So many games have done it. It's not far off. If if I'd have a rocket launcher and a machine gun, it would have been Deathwish Three. There's yes. even the sprites look kind of similar. There's nothing to this. It's just boring. It just re- reduces what could have been something really incredible. Which and I suppose and I think underneath the hood, the logic of that Taipan experience, the logic of becoming the Taipan, the big trader, the big person that has all the you know that that has all of the things to trade and all of those things. I think it's there somewhere. But they've wrapped it in such a boring, visually uncompelling experience that nobody'd want to get there. To be the Taipan of this boring 8-bit blocky monstrosity? No thanks, I'd rather not. I would rather take a poo. And I did, actually. When <laughs> I loaded this game, I needed a poo. So that's what I did. And I had more enjoyment out of that than I did out of this experience. I'd rate my poo 89%. This game was 64%. So I think I think I did better. It, that's the tragedy, instead isn't of a it? Ta- that, um, instead of a Taipan, you had a brown pan. Well, I've, my final note for this was, it's not for me. <laughs> I found this game a tie pain in the ass. So <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Uh, yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Good luck. Good riddance. Yeah, it was more like I said. It, it was another. It was like that Pirates of the Barbary Coast, wasn't it? It's like that. Yeah, but the, the, the coasts were like Barbary. They were just you know they were full of Chinese lanterns, <laughs> some of which were very old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, uh, that that there we go. Tie pain in the ass. I like that. That'll do brown pan uh let's move along let's move along quickly out of that nonsense and graham tell us what it's like to be a special agent music here is by johan behejard or begerhard begerhard uh but that's who it is producer is Bo m nielsen Copyright Danish Designs, that's the people. It's Firebird Silver release anyway, whoever did all of that. 199 Zap gave it 63%. So, you have been sent into Moscow to help another agent, Felix the Cleaner Hoover, who has infiltrated the KGB headquarters to steal blueprints to a secret Soviet spacecraft. But he has been discovered. He was helping complete his task before helping him escape by shooting any KGB agents who get in your way over the various levels. The game is a platform game with a part of the level shown on the screen and will scroll when you move, obviously. You are uh, short of Western money, so you must search every doorway on your on each level to try and find money and items and documents to help you escape. There's other bonuses as well. To move down the other platforms, you must use the elevators and you'll lose one of your five lives if you fall too far or you are shot. A joystick is used to control your hero. Okay, hopefully hopefully you got all that. So, mm-hmm. this is a quite a simple game logic. The idea is that you're going to navigate a series of flick screen mazes 
uh, platforms in order to navigate and move around the levels and try and collect stuff. You get collect stuff at the doors, you move stuff with you move your player around with your joystick and you have to navigate the various lifts. This is elevator action in a whole sort of separate 199 budget version in a kind of weird way. Mm-hmm. There's lots to like about it. You could go into this story, the Moscow 1998, top CIA agent, blah, blah, blah. There's some nice, interesting story arcs to this a little bit. Um, but the mainstay of the game is the same. You've got to navigate the mazes and platforms and lifts, checking the doors and shooting the agents as you make your escape. It's all fairly simple. The controls are with the joystick. You jump, shoot. So you jump um, with the uh, top left and right of the joystick and you shoot with the fire button. You can't fall too far because if you do, you die. Um, So you've got to be mindful of waiting for lifts and going up and down and navigating it. It reminded me a little bit of a um, Mario. You know that Mario game that's like the multi-game thing that's on the Wii U? Um, What's it called? The um, Mario Party, Nintendo Land? Nintendo Land. It reminded me of one of the levels in Nintendo Land where you've got to guide the little truck down the various levels. I don't know what that's called, that one particularly. but And it reminded me of that because at the end of the day, you are just navigating a person down a series of platforms and lifts and navigating that space in between. You can obviously shoot your enemies, do all of that, but you're not going to last long because this game is tough. Um, so the controls are simple. The logic is simple. Um, everything is quite simple. You can't fall too far because if you do, you die. So I, I found that quite tough. The enemies get in the way and will drain your life and there's a lot of waiting around. So when it gets to a lift, you've got to wait. You can't just run around and do that. Graphics are quite small. They're chunky, but they're quite well animated and they're kind of very sort of blue ish blue and white there's a nice shaded pixel quality to the graphics on display here but it is kind of what it is and i suppose the question after all that is does it play well well it's kind of samey i think this would get dull over time but it was two pounds two quid for two pounds i don't think it's that bad at all i think there's quite a little bit of exploratory game in here so i quite liked it did it deserve better than 63 percent? damn right it did this should have been at least in the 70s i think this was all right what about you yeah no no argument from me it's an elevator action clone um, for two quid and um, it's better than way 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 better than the original the official elevator action conversion and the action such as it is sees you navigating the maze-like building going up and down elevators shooting bad guys and opening doors for documents and points and whatever it's elevating action but what i liked about this version it's not all vertical which is good to see the game is wider than a single screen so it scrolls left and right as well so this makes navigating the level it's, it's a bit more interesting than it is in the other variants of this game uh the animation is really good there's really nice death animations when anyone gets killed whether you die or or they die and i really like the bad guy sprites as they wander back and forth in their suits and hats and tommy guns they're really well drawn they look they looked the part i thought they were really cool they're really well drawn and animated the backdrops are a bit bland uh, but although i did like the um the tv screen with the advert on like cmvg zap coke coke, coke and stuff that was quite a nice touch but uh, sound is okay uh appropriate effects there's an okay tune on the title screen the main issue i had with the game i did like it but i thought it was just a bit too slow it's just too slow it's a bit it needed to be just a bit faster. I just thought it took, takes ages to run and, and go up and down the lifts. It's a little, a little bit snappier in the play, and it could have been really good. I, just as a, just as a, as a test, I switched the uh, emulator because I was playing some Vice. I switched the emulator up to 150% CPU speed just to th- see what it would play like at that. And it was it was way more enjoyable at that that pace. It was a much more snappier game, faster, but felt much nicer. So I'm, I'm not saying speed it up, it would be easy to do that. But if they'd have managed to sort of incorporate a bit of a faster pace into this, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of games. But saying that, this is still a decent elevator action game for two quid with some really nice death animations. And for two quid, 
you couldn't go wrong for this. And yeah, you are, you are, you are right. It's worth more than 63%. It's, uh, you know, it's compelling. It's decent. It's hard. It's tough, but it all works. It looks nice. And it's got a strange loading screen with a what looks like a grinning Texan or something. I don't know, with blonde hair. It's a very brown, all the brown. But yeah, I like Special Agent, so it was all right. There you go. It's not not some not too bad games here this month. We've got one more. Should we get into our last one? Do it. Let's get into it. Let's do it. And that game is a full-price arcade conversion. This is Solomon's Key. Solomon's Key. And this is brought to us by US Gold uh, via Probe Software, who did the uh, design on this and coding and stuff. And this was originally developed in the arcade by Tecmo. So this was released by Tecmo. You may remember Tecmo from such things as Ninja Gaiden, I guess, um, and Dead or Alive and things like that. It was designed by Michitaka Suruta, uh, who took inspiration from the game Load Runner for this. So... The plot of the arcade version, according to Wikipedia, is that you play a wizard called Dana, Dana, and you have been sent to recover Solomon's key, which is the only thing that can restore light to the world after demons had been accidentally released. And that's the point of the game in, in the Japanese release. This has been changed to the home conversions to a simple quest for riches and gold as you try and navigate the levels in order to obtain King Solomon's glorious wealth. So, you know, get deeper and find his wealth. That's what this one is now. But whatever the plot, the conversions remain faithful to the original. Um, and really, the, the plot for the game is just it's just window dressing anyway. So, you know, who cares? So what we have here is a single screen puzzle platformer where the aim of each screen is to reach the key that is somewhere on the screen. And that will then open the exit, which is also somewhere on the screen, allowing you to escape to the next level of which in the C64 version, there are 30, which has been cut down from the original 64 in the arcade. So it sounds simple enough, but as ever with these games, it's never as simple as it sounds. So how does this actually play? So the levels are made up uh, of a series of blocks. So on screen, there'll be a series of blocks. Some of them are stone, and they are grey, and some of them are made of mud, I believe, mud or dirt, and they are brown. Um, and Dana has a wand with which they can create and destroy brown blocks to either the left or right of them or down and to the right or left. So you, you can destroy or create blocks and use them to then navigate the world. Dana can also jump up onto brown blocks, um, jump up into brown blocks, sorry, if you're underneath a Mario style, and destroy them with a couple of headbutts as well. Dana cannot destroy the grey blocks, though. Um, so they... they so it tends to wall off the areas and you have to try to work your way around them. So what this means is that the player is free to try and navigate the screen as they see fit, creating and destroying blocks as they go, creating paths to try and get to the key and then to the exit. You can also, if standing on the edge of a block, destroy or create a block one space away from you. So there's a good range of options open to the player uh, in how they try and make their way through the screen. So the player can also jump as well, as I said, and they'll need to do this to climb a block in front of them. So you can jump up on the block. And, you, you, and the good thing about the jumping, I haven't mentioned this, but your jump is precisely one. Everything's kind of based around these square square measurements. So all the blocks are one square. When you jump up, you you won't go higher than one block up. So if there's a creature going two blocks, you know, two blocks higher than you, if you jump up, you're safe. You won't hit it. That's a good thing. You can plan that. If you know that's the case, you can plan your movement, and that's always good in a game like this because the screens are also populated by various enemies, and they're, they're, these enemies have different behaviors and different weird things. So some just walk back and forth along gray blocks just between, you know, 
back and forth and they, they'll do that some float across the arena not on blocks but just going back and forth some cling to a surface and patrol it like the fireflies uh, in boulder dash they'll always be going to the left and if they if you create a block next to them they'll go around that block and you can lead them off to try and get past them some there's some generators on certain screens and these drop some enemies that make their way to the bottom of the screen um, and if they hit a mud block on their way they and that they're on their way they'll destroy it to bounce off it um, and this can spell problems for you if you've created a mud block you're standing on it and it destroys it you drop down obviously that can be that can be problematic there are other enemies as well that, that sort of just sort of lurk on the walls and they spit projectiles at you when you're in line with them so you need to be careful of all these things because collision with any of them loses you one of your five lives and when they're all gone obviously it's game over there is also a timer counting down and should this reach zero you also lose a life if you reach the exit in time though uh, whatever time is left is converted to bonus points to boost your score. There are also collectibles dotted about the levels to collect for points and a bell that, upon collected, releases a fairy from somewhere on the screen that floats around the screen and gives bonus points when collected. I think collecting the fairies leads you to the hidden bonus levels as well. So if you collect enough of them, they'll open up the bonus levels at certain points. Because there are many secrets littered throughout the levels as well, with hidden items in blocks and shooting some enemies, and shoot some enemies giving you bonuses as well. Sorry, shooting some of the collectibles to give you bonuses as well. And, and if you do shoot some of the uh, the things you can collect, it can actually change them into different things. So shooting as it's shooting them, I mean, if you next them and you press fire by pointing at them, it can change them into different things, and that can be good or bad depending on what it changes into. You can shoot as well if you've collected jars with a flame on them, and this allows you to let loose a fireball that follows the track of the wall it hits and destroys enemies it meets so if you fire it it'll move along the bottom and it'll then go up if there's a wall there and around on the top of the ceiling like the fireflies again in uh boulder dash so it does that kind of that kind of um ai logic so that's this game so there's lots of stuff on screen you've got to make your way to the key you get the key the door opens and you've got to get to it and it's about working your way around the screen avoiding the enemies trying to navigate stuff trying to understand how what you know when you can use different things and get out that's the point so as with any good platform puzzle this stands or falls on its level design and here that i think they're, they're pretty well designed and challenging on both a mental and a dexterous level the first three levels introduce you to the growing complexity the first level is pretty simple um the second level gets a little bit harder with things dropping down the third level really throws you into it and you've got to really try and work your way through that and you kind of got to do use all the skills at your uh, disposal and then from there you go on um and there's a, there's a growing complexity to the mechanics about how you want to deal with the enemies um and from you know from there as they progress they get more devious and they ask more of you as the player to navigate through them the use of the different types of enemy uh, offers some very tricky levels and you may able to you need to be able to think fast and act on it and consider the implications of creating a block or destroying one and whether that's going to help or just send a monster into your face and you know kill you because when you die you've got to do the whole screen again there's no that's it you're back at the beginning and everything's reset so it's tough you've got to kind of work your way it's a puzzle remember it's a puzzle so you've got to all right if i do that there if i put this block there that enemy will go into it it'll destroy that dad but and so on and so forth the controls are simple enough with left and right moving you and up for jump holding fire pressing left or right or the lower diagonals creates or destroys a block if there's a gap for it to go in um and pressing the commodore key unleashes a fireball if you have any although mm, i really should have been mapped to the space bar Always map extra stuff to the spacebar designers. Always. It's big and it's easier to hit than any other key on the on the Commodore keyboard. Stupid not to do that. Uh, it's moves fast. It's responsive. Uh, the sprites are not the best. They're okay. They do their job and we'll leave it at that. They're perfectly suitable for the game. There's no slowdown and everything works as it should. The music's a lift from the arcade. Suits the game well. And this is a very enjoyable example of another simple idea done well and plays to 8-bit computer strengths. 
single screen puzzling, working your way through it, through it. Like kind of like we said about Bubble Bobble. Another good choice of game to convert. I think this is a really good game. And I was glad to go back to this and play it again. It's one of those games around that time that does that single idea thing and builds upon it in ever increasingly challenging ways. It's full price though, okay? And although it only includes half the levels of the arcade, it does include a number of hidden rooms and bonus levels as well. So, you know, 30 levels, full price, maybe could have been a little cheaper. I don't know. The challenge of getting to them would have kept you going. And if you get into this, it's going to provide you with quite a you know stiff challenge, but something you can do. It's addictive as well, as a lot of these games are. Once you get going, and it's a very Moorish, one more go type of game. Oh, I know what I did wrong in that level. I can figure it now and I can do it. Yeah, this all works for me. I think this is a solid, solid game and really enjoyed this and a really good conversion. What about you? Pretty much the same. I'm not going to add too much more to that. It's a funky arcade conversion. It retained most of the arcade charm as far as I could see. And I looked at both the C64 version, which I played in the arcade version in YouTube. So um, I thought there was a, it was basically the same thing I was looking at, obviously with the restraints of an 8-bit C64 graphic system. The main sprites are a bit untidy in this C64 version, but they are working and they animate and it's there. The levels and the gameplay, however, remain pretty much intact from what I could see. And that's important because the game is quite addictive. There's a lot of ideas combined into this game, as you've said. Pengo, Bubble Bobble, amongst many other stalwarts and, and there's platform games, including the Mario Logic and a few others in here that are all there. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to like. It's a lot that's well, it's going for. It has all the trappings of those things. It's a decent game. It's infuriating, no doubt about that, but it's a decent game. And I like it. I liked it back then. Um, it was an odd game to get hold of back then in the UK. This wasn't one. I don't. I don't know if you'll remember it particularly well or unwell, but this was not something that appeared massively on the shelves in the UK. I don't know why. Certainly not here. I got this on a very early pirate release. I forget which demo group it was at the time, but I got. I think it might be in Hotline. But I got a pirate copy of this long before they ever saw it in the shelves in the in the UK. Which gave mm. me massive loads of, you know, uh, uh, kudos in the playgrounds at the school <laughs> um, at the time because I had this like way early. But, you know, by this point, I was getting loads and loads of software. I was trading internationally at this point with Des Express and all the other stuff. So this was, I think, one of the very first early versions of a game that was cracked that I distributed wildly myself. I'm sorry, people who made this game, but that's what happened. That's <laughs> okay. If you, can't, if you can't buy it, if you can't find it to buy, what could you do? I'd bought plenty of games in my time and rented plenty yeah. from the, as we've said, from J&M Software in Grimsby at the time. Very unique to Grimsby, that. But there were certain games that you couldn't get hold of and you just had to get them the way you could. And this was one of them. Now, it, it wasn't a game I sought to find. And I have to say, I'd never really encountered the arcade. Did you encounter the arcade anywhere? Because I, I I never came across it. No, my main experience with this was on the Amstrad. My friend who had the Amstrad had this, and we played a lot of it on that. And it worked pretty well on the Amstrad as well because it yeah, yeah, had yeah. to scroll. Um, it's that simple thing. But yeah, this yeah. was, I, I do, I think, I'm not sure whether I got the C64, but I think I might got it off Gary. Um, yeah, he would have got it off me <laughs> probably. at that time. Probably did. Probably, but, probably. But the the thing is, when, when the game starts, obviously the, each level starts and you see the key and you see you and you see where you're going to be. There's a bit more pizzazz around the arcade, uh, but the logic oh, yeah, is the is, same. Yeah. But there is, but the, the logic is the same. It, it I like the way it sort of gives you an indication of whereabouts you need to be on each level before you need to try and get there. And it plays the same. I like this a lot. I like these single screen um, moved around the, the navigate your way around the world sort of games. I like them. 
this is a good version of one of those. It's a bit pricey, maybe. Um, but the thing is, and I've been thinking about the price of this because it's $9.99 at full price. And Zap made a point of saying, well, it's a bit pricey, this, or what it is. It's quite simple for that. But let's be absolutely honest. What they're doing here isn't simple. This is complex stuff. This is an arcade conversion. Yeah. There's, a, there's loads of levels here. There's complicated stuff. You can't just go, you know what? I, don't, I just don't think it's quite complicated enough to warrant a full price tag. It's complicated. This wouldn't be a debate if 199 crapola games didn't exist or 199 games that are kind of average didn't exist. I like Solomon's Key. I think it's really good yeah. and and I really enjoyed it in a way that um later down the line in a sort of similar way. I know it's not the same that I liked Gordian's Tomb and Rick Dangerous for the same kind of reason. I like these exploratory little games like this. It's nice. Good stuff. Yeah. I enjoyed it's, it. I mean this has also got the cleverness of being able to create, you know, platforms wherever you want. That Pengo logic, but on the C64, remember you're limited to you're limited in the way the sprites work. It doesn't does not happen with this. It's it's really clever. It's clever mm. stuff. I like it. It's, it's a really good funky little game. I liked it at the time, albeit that I had to pirate it, but I liked it at the time. So yeah, yeah. good stuff. There we go. Really good, good, good one, stuff. Good, yeah. one, good one to end on. Almost end on. I've got a, something just to add to the end in here. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But we've that's it. That's it for our games that we've actually looked at. So there you go. Um, we looked at Qdex, which we liked, but was too hard. Too hard. Scary Monsters, which was clearly unfinished. <laughs> Blazer, too hard. Too hard. Uh, Joe Blade, Cracked Bloodfinger. <laughs> Star Fox, no, no Chris Christopherson in the convoys. Too much wandering around. Enlightenment, Druid 2. Good stuff. Too hard. Good. No, really. Too hard. Yeah. Tunnel Vision. Tunnel, tunnel hard vision. Two. Very hard yeah. too. Uh, Taipan, boring. Yeah. Taipan uh, in the ass. <laughs> Taipan, special agent. Yeah, it was all right. Elevator action, right. good stuff. And Solomon's Key, which is a good, great one to end on. Yeah. Uh, you know, this month's not been too bad. After the dire atrocity that was October, November has been much better. <laughs> Thank the Lord. We do have yep. one more. Uh, there was another game reviewed in this issue of Zap 64, and that game was called Pyramid of Time. So I hunted around for this, but I couldn't find that we had a. I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it anywhere. So I found an. There's an entry on the games that weren't website about this game. Um, and this was supposed to be um, by Firebird. Um, it was for one or two players. Um, it got a full review. It got 78% in Zap. So this is not a... Greens look weird. good. Yeah, and they say it's some sci-fi stuff. I'm not going to read out the review, but they give it 78%. The interesting thing is here sort of thing is that, you know, the problem was was that um, it was strangely addictive, they said, extremely well presented. So what happened to it? Richard Hewison found out from Colin Fridge, who programmed it, I think, who worked on the budget room fiber, that the game could not be converted to tape, which made it impossible to publish. The game was apparently very weird overall. Um, it was the brainchild of the late Russell Lieblick, who was the main programmer. He was doing all the sounds and music too. Glenn, however, helped with a bit of navigation code and wrote the bonus level, uh, this is according to Glenn Anderson, where you navigate in a moving grid. Um, it was told that it was never released due to Activision thinking that the market would not accept the game. It seems that Firebird had the best opportunity, but due to it probably being a set of master discs, they may have made it hard to transfer by the company. It's odd, though, that it was sent to Zap before this was published, before this was established. They've noted here that it's unlikely that any copy of this will ever turn up. Any copy sent to Fiber and Zap seem to be long gone, and it would be a miracle now to see anything on this game turn up. I scoured for it. I couldn't find it, so... No, I looked everywhere for this, but that's the only thing I could find around this. So it's kind of a strange one. There's, there's a, we'll put the show. We'll put the link in the show notes to so the games that weren't thing about it. Mm. But, you know, it's a, it's reviewed, so if you wonder why haven't you looked at Pyramid of Time? It's like, well, we can't. It's not it there. Exist. It's nothing to look at. It's, it's gone. It's disappeared into erased. time. It's erased. 
it's erased. So there you go. That's that one. Um, we've got a crap vert. We do. <laughs> this is for Wizard Wars. <laughs> Just plain old, stupid, old, classic, <laughs> old, stupid. <laughs> so what we've got here, we've got the, the writing for Wizard Wars, which has been stroked within an inch, an inch of its life. Oh God, that's, um, that's a <laughs> someone's got massive... Mad with the stroke. That's not, that's not a stroke. Yeah, it is a stroke because there's no bevel or stroke, but someone's put it up to 100. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've 110% stroked it. Yeah. Terrible. And um, it's they, also got an outline on that stroke as well, by the way. There's an outline on the stroke and on yeah, and on the actual letters as well. It's all, it's all wrong. The thing that pisses me off about this is the, there's a... So in the middle of this, there's the drawing. There's a couple of wizards... There's wizards in yellow and green robes that firing things at each other. One's yeah, at the surrounded front, by runes. Like, surrounded by runes, yellow runes. But what's wrong with this, Graham? Eye of Newt, Blood of Rat. Bring me the powers of visions of combat. Oh, Too many God. syllables. Yeah, just bring me the powers of vision and com. Bring me the powers of vision. It don't work. No, Eye no, of no, Newt, no, Blood no, of no. Rat. Bring me the powers of vision and combat. Does that work? Yeah, but you, did, you didn't have to do... No, it doesn't work because blood of rat and combat are not compatible <laughs> no. in that meter. Your poetic meter's all wrong. <laughs> surrounding it wrong. in stupid runes with your silly... And there's, there's a lot of obtuse beard on that image. And that one on the right seems to be suffering from a bit of winding of the beard as well because yeah, it's this floating beard, a bit forward. Uh, exactly. The main guy and his weird... Has he got a finger missing? I thought he did for a second, but he's he's got fingers, pointy dagger fingers. It's like he's angry at a map of the universe. He is, but he looks exactly like the, the the guy from uh, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. If you scroll down a bit, you'll see. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's the, sa- it's the same guy <laughs> from that. I can't remember the name of the actor. It's also with its mic- microscopic fonts and stupid story shit. It's rubbish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the wizards are well drawn. Yeah, well, the music's good for the game. That's where the da, 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 that we've used for an hour podcast before now. Oh, is that where that comes from? That's, that's from Wizard also, Wars. Yeah, it's good. It's also got the smallest screenshot ever. Yeah, and it doesn't even look like that's from a wizard game. I don't know what that no. is, but not good. Not good. Not good. It's not a good crap vert. It is a good crap vert, but here you go. We venture into the mystical medieval dark ages in Wizard Wars. I'd rather not. All right, let's get into the chart. Let's do quickly do the chart. Number 10, Back to the Future. What? Budget re-release, I'm guessing, from Firebird. It's been injected it's, from the future. <laughs> it's come back. It's just, yeah, it's come back <laughs> for some reason. How God is knows. That, how is that in there right now? Nobody. How is there a sudden resurgence of that? Like I said, it was, well, it's from Firebirds. So I'm presuming they've just re-released it on budget. Well, that's that. But as also, the, is there another film out at this time? Maybe There's no, no. Because uh, Back to Future Two and Three are 1989, aren't they? At number nine is Cricket International. What? Who, what? Who? <laughs> Don't know. Down to number eight is Last Ninja. Down what? to number seven. Okay. Well, it's been number one for ages since it came out. I think everyone's bought it by now. Down to number seven is Decathlon. Up to number okay. six is Ace Two. A new entry at number five, Bubble Bobble. Makes sense. Down to number four is World Class Leaderboard. Yeah, in makes number, sense. Yeah, in at number three is Renegade. New entry. Yeah, Arcade. Up to number two is Kickstart 2 and straight in at number one, Arcade Classics. There is one thing that we do need to talk about just quickly. Um, and in this issue of CNVG, there was a Thundercats comic. I saw that you'd posted the Thundercats comic underneath. We don't talk about <laughs> Thundercats comic in CNVG. We don't talk about the relationship that was developing clearly between Lion-O and 
Tigra. It's Tigra. It's Tigra, isn't it? Yeah, it must be. We don't talk about it because there's too many elements <laughs> in that where they're happily skipping across the field and Tiger grabs Lido by the wrist and is like, hey, are you sure we're doing the right thing? Hold on. Hold on a second, you there, with your big sword and your blue pants. <laughs> The, the the bottom right panel on page two where they're just dead angry or or not it just kills not me angry. every time if you if you noticed in every almost every single page tiger is trying to grab Lionel by the wrist <laughs> yeah there's one way he's fully on heimlich maneuvering him well he's not heimlich maneuvering i think what he's doing there is he's trying to emulate i mean look at the one on the second panel on the uh, second on the left on the way down. Lino's distracted. He's firing the Sword of Omens at something. And he's just, <laughs> he's, he's going for the, he's going for full, he's going for full cock grab. He's grabbing <laughs> Lino by his, his tight pant cock. Oh, like, so good. It, it's all very suggestive. It's a very crazy comic. Now, I like the fact that it goes black and white halfway through as well. I, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. This is, you know, I couldn't draw like this, but there's a real like this. subtext. A there's a subtext. There's a panel where I think it's Lionel who's just there in his underpants. He's just waving his sword around his underpants. But that is, if that isn't a euphemism for something else, I'm going to stand in my pants and wave my sword around <laughs> and then shout, whoa, Tigra, help me. Come on. I mean, it's, not, yeah. it, it's obvious what's going on here. It's obvious. Yep. I don't know. Uh... There's a, there's, and then there's a panel which made me laugh out loud. And I, I look at it right now and I think that is crazy. There's two panels. Couldn't hold it. The pull was too great. I've lost him. Where Lino is like is like skidding across the floor in his man pants, and then the next one he's like doing a massive pull, punch fist maneuver. Like Lino, that Tiger is doing that, but Tiger is doing a yeah. punch fist maneuver. Like Lino, Lino. It's like oh my god. And then in the bottom no. left one, he looks suspiciously like um, oh, what's his name <laughs> from Ma <Mar>, Meatloaf. <laughs> he does look like Will Ferrell. Yeah. Will Ferrell. <laughs> And it doesn't. It made me realise that I think Will Ferrell would be a good lion Oh, ah, Tigra. Meatloaf. Tigra. Oh, sorry, sorry, it's Tigra, yeah, in that. Sorry. Tiger, yeah. Tigra, yeah. Is, or a good character from this, yeah. At one point, yeah, Tigra is asking lion to grab the end of his whip. If you're wearing a leotard with one shoulder piece and you're punching the air shouting lion there's only so many ways you can interpret that. Yeah. So... I don't know. I don't know. This uh, is very suggestive. I didn't realize that, that Tiger had this relationship with Lionel until I saw this. It's very intimate. Very intimate. Very intimate. We're all we're okay with that. It's all good. There's an amazing image on the bottom left of that in the black and white one where, where Lionel is punching into the wall and it just says, whoa, Tiger, help. And he's just gone <laughs> wrist, he's gone wrist deep in something. <laughs> he's gone muscle deep. <laughs> he's gone muscle deep. He's gone full then Muscle deep. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone that wants to see this I, I, i'll put i'll try i'll try find a link because it's in an episode it's in an i'll try okay i'll take some images of this and try and post them on twitter or into a discord and stuff but it's very funny it's some kind of animated youtube video where it zooms in on each panel i think that'd be amazing <laughs> that's too much work that's too much work i can't be bothered but it is good but the good thing about this is that this was i think in either this issue the last issue or the next issue was out they have a full-on judge dread judge anderson versus the four dark judges comic and yes. it's like the, the difference is staggering because this, uh, looking through the next few issues <laughs> of CMVG, this comic continues, this uh, Thundercats one. It's just as bad. Look at that top left panel on page two. Just look at where, where he's gone wrist deep. It's a different <laughs> colour. So you know that that's how far it went in. Honestly, it's a euphemism beyond euphemism. Sword of Omens, give me euphemism beyond euphemism. 
Oh, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley as Thundercats. <laughs> Look at his face in the top right panel. You're right, Tigra. I have to learn. Wait, the Eye of Thundera. It only glows like that when you're near. When you're in when danger nearby. There's danger nearby. Wom, 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 and he's man He's pulling me too. That's because you've grabbed hold of him. <laughs> oh, no, that's thinking how Lino's saying that. Hold on, Lino, we've got to fight it. Bite Jagger's beard. Jagger doesn't have a beard, does he? I think, oh, he does have a little beard. He does. <laughs> Don't know. Plucked from the sword like a cork. Plucked from the sword like a cork. From a bottle. Okay. Oh, there we go. Uh, we'll post that anyway. But it's a nice... Uh, a nice little fun thing to end on, <laughs> the craziness of Thundercats comics. It shouldn't oh, be that way. It shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. Oh, that's it for November. We move into our final month for the next week, December. Um, um, you know what then, that means, don't you? What's that? You know what Christmas? that means. It's nearly Christmas, and it means that we're approaching another, another Breadbin Awards. We are approaching another Breadbin Awards, yes. So... With that in mind, w- once I've put these things upon on our face on our on our, po- on our website, we will be asking for we'll asking for people's opinions. Let's see what people think. Probably join in, it, yeah, become part what, of what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, so Breadbin Awards, three hundred and twenty games, I think it is this year. Unbelievable. To choose from, uh, that we've gone and worked our way through three seventeen, three hundred seventeen, three hundred twenty, something like that. I counted them. It was just well, when I say counted them, I just looked how many there was on Excel. <laughs> <laughs> When I pasted a couple and pasted them all in, I was like, wow, that's a lot. Glad I didn't count them. It took me ages, at least 20 minutes. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we've got a lot of games. So, God, it's just been a lot of crap this year. I don't want to think about it because it, it makes my brain <laughs> go, nyang, nyang, nyang. I know, well, but there's that. They, we've, got an, we've got a few things on the on the boil. That's just coming up soon, so. Yeah, it is. So, uh, yeah, I think oh, it's been another long episode. I think we'll finish there. We spoke about the Patreon at the start. So, as ever... Ugh, I have been Adrian Mills. And I have been Graham Raddings. <laughs> and we have been by Jagger's beard. <laughs> by Jagger's beard. I've been wrist deep in Lionel's <laughs> pants. I haven't, thank God. <laughs> You'd never want that. Uh, by the Eye of Thundera, we have been zapped to the past. And we will see you again next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, films and TV from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at that time. We will return with a whole new batch of games and stuff to talk about next week. Until then, if you want to listen to or download previous episodes of Zap to the Past, and why wouldn't you, they can all be found on our website at zaptothepast.com, as well as being available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, pretty much anywhere where we can upload them. By the way, we do always love to hear from our amazing listeners, so if you'd like to contact us about anything in the podcast or beyond, you can do so by emailing us at zaptothepast at gmail.com. We're also active on Twitter under at Zaptother, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and most social media platforms. Just search for Zap to the Past and you'll find us. Oh, and if you like the podcast and what we're doing, please do like, share, review, rate us. It really helps. Something, apparently. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Ruddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers, and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe, see you next time, and remember, we play these games so you don't have to.